Yeah, today was today was a little chilly. <laughs> yeah. be all right, the rest of the week, and then get cold again. But nice. Are you two just seeing how long you can go without talking about the Red Sox? Because that was impressive. Damn. Honestly, you know, I, oh, I, I, I was sleeping. I I, I lost that bet actually. I, I, I didn't dude, you go a minute. There's a lockout, man. I mean, what are we going <laughs> to? That's right. We're not we're not allowed to because the because the yeah. rules. No, no, Brian. I was really hoping that you would introduce Stephen, and that I would say, hold on a second here. You know, we we forgot his 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 prime accolade. Yeah, my my only accolade. <laughs> What's his prime accolade? Being being a Red Sox super fan. Yeah, that's his prime accolade. Stephen has lived a much more important and fuller life than that. I I'm, I I'm, uh, I haven't actually. Yeah, that's the sad thing. I'm sorry, but Brian, you completely misunderstood. That is like the highest praise. Like <laughs> the highest praise like that, that that anyone would say that about me. Like I I would you know I'd consider it a, a full life. Yeah, there you go. So, Stephen, the sorry. So, Adam, do you want to introduce Stephen? Do I introduce Stephen? We should. I think uh, we just did. Red Sox super fan. What else does it say? Move on. Red Sox super fan. So I have a. So Stephen, when you and I first met, I want to say was it in ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one, sometime in there. Ah oh, man, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. You know how long ago that was. <laughs> I like to pretend I've been doing this for a couple years, man. Don't don't bust up my rap. That is two plus decades ago. We've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. It, no, it, it would have been. Let's see. Probably would have been a little later than that. I think probably oh. I mean, I, three. Probably oh three or oh four. Okay, but right after you started Red Monk with James. Yes. So whenever, yeah, I guess that would be oh three or four. Um, I, I noticed that you very carefully getting you under the two decade mark. Um, yeah, you, you're still venerable. I'm sorry. Um, and it, I mean, it, it was, I mean, obviously a kindred spirit. It was great to, because you and I would meet, you, you were, uh, you'd get invited to the sun analyst. I mean, you were an analyst. I don't want to, of course, but you'd be invited to the sun analyst, Jen Diggs. Um, and, um, let's just say that some analysts had a clearer vision for modernity than others. And you and I always ended up talking with James and others, um, quite a bit. And in particular, I mean, I remember you being early and big on a couple of, of big mega trends, um, clearly open source. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's been really, I would, I'd love to talk about how that has played out. Um, and maybe that's certainly some of my predictions are related to open source. Um, but also in terms of the importance of the, the developer. Um, and I mean, you were very, I think, I mean, Adam, I think, correct me from your perception, but I mean, Stephen was one of the first to really see the importance of the developer as a decision maker inside the company. Oh. Yeah, totally. Like the new Kingmaker and uh, some of the pieces you wrote on that topic, I, I, I still forward around to folks and have on my mandatory reading lists. Um, so yeah, like the the developer as this important force in sales that had previously just uh, folks thought you could just talk to the boss and they would dictate down to folks. Uh, you know, a, a, a real revolution that I, I you know I learned about from you first. And so, Stephen, when did you start making predictions, annual predictions? Oh, man, that's a good question. Probably would have been, let's see, probably 2010, 2009, 2010, somewhere in that range. And then, um, and then for how many years were the predictions terrible? It was only when the, as I recall, you were making very safe but very boring predictions. Or maybe this, <laughs> maybe this, is, my, maybe this is my version of it. Yeah, we all uh, feel that way, Stephen. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know that any of the predict- predictions were super, 
super insightful at the time. But uh, let's see, you got you tricked me into ah, I tricked you. There up, we go. Ramp, ramping up the aggressiveness. <laughs> that probably would have been I don't know, thirteen maybe. 2013, 2014, somewhere and, in that. And they got a lot more Well, you were grading yourself on your accuracy. I'm like, you got to stop doing that. Like, I think a hundred percent of prediction accuracy is like a zero for me because that's like what makes a prediction interesting is when it's it's big and bold. Because I think, I mean, my thesis, Stephen, I'd love to get your take on this and Adam yours as well. But I think that predictions tell us way more about the present than they do about the future. I think that's fair. I, I uh, think this is I a prelude to it. Brian, this is a prelude to an apology about some predictions mm. you've made. I assume. Oh, I got. It. I I didn't realize I was going to be walked into an apology. I well, I do <laughs> feel that like the when I have been I, so for full disclosure, um, Adam and I and I blogged about this a couple years ago. We starting in two thousand would get together, um, kind of the first Monday after the new year, and we would make one, three, and six year predictions. We all worked for Sun at the time. So we made one, three, and six-year predictions about both Sun and the industry. And Adam, I, I sent you a bunch of those earlier today. Did you get a chance to go through any of this? Yeah, I, look, I looked mostly at my terrible predictions. But yeah, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was pretty awesome. And you started this before – I think you started this in 99. I, Is that right? I think it started in 2000. So it would have oh. been, it would have been the, like the, oh yeah yeah got it right first days of 2000 right the first days of 2000 exactly. <laughs> those heady days of 2000 the heady days of 2000 and it is kind of striking how many of the predictions are are right versus wrong versus prescient did you see my iPhone prediction Adam no I didn't what what uh, tell me this one what, what year was that 2003 okay I made a three year prediction. That Apple has a new must-have gadget that they dubbed the iPhone. That is a combination MP3 player, camera. Let me get my exact language. My exact language is almost chilling in its prescience. Uh, uh, iPhone, digital camera, MP3 player, and cell phone. And which seems like an incredible prediction. Three-year prediction, 2003. But I also thought it was going to be a total flop. I thought it was a bad idea. So, you know what I mean? It's like the prediction is accurate, but like not for the right reason. Well, okay. All right, wait, 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 wait. So I have an important question here. So if you're making that prediction, Steve Jobs is on stage in January 06. That yeah. He was. Yeah. What the hell are the rest of us doing here? Like, let's just, <laughs> just go. No, because I'm a jackass. One, I'm cherry picking the one accurate prediction among the sea of laughably inaccurate predictions. So I'm, uh, and two, I I was right, but for the wrong reasons. And I, I again, I thought it was going to be like like Google Glass esque, and it wasn't, <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> well, and I think Brian, your your OKR like philosophy on uh, on prediction accuracy. I think the other tip on predictions is if you make enough of them. Eventually, you'll have <laughs> yes. one that seems really good. Yeah, right? the, 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 that's actually a very good point because I made a lot of them. Because <laughs> we did this for like what we have nine, nine, ten years of them or something. Right. I got nine, ten years, one, three, and six for Sun and the industries. I got six predictions a year. We often did two, so you often have like ten predictions a person a year. I've got like eighty of them, and it's like, yeah, that's a very good point, Adam. That like, yeah, you're gonna like every joker is gonna stumble into something that's impressive. <laughs> So, so this is this was great advice that Brian gave you, Stephen. Like to 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 be bold, because then you know when it when it comes up your number, you look you look like a genius. Yeah. See, the thing is, is that I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I wasn't smart enough to follow that advice. I don't think I, I have to go back and look. I don't think I e- increased the volume when I increased <laughs> the aggressiveness. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, that that didn't really happen. I think basically the only thing that happened is that my 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 predictive scores. You know, I so for folks that haven't read them before, I would do a prediction at the end of the year and I revisit it before I did the next year's predictions, and I would score them as Brian mentioned. And um, yeah, all I remember is my score. You know, basically going into the tank, all of a sudden it was like 30, 40%. It was like, thanks, Brian. This is great. Not the way I scored you, Stephen. I scored you top marks those years. Those oh, yeah. th- those F minus years were an A plus from my perspective. Okay. okay. We, we need to get to people's predictions, but I do, I do want to just set the record straight on this 2003 prediction because Uh-oh. Brian is exactly as you said. Yes. And then, and then had another prediction. And his other his other three year <laughs> prediction was that he was disgusted by his trendy <laughs> Apple predictions and expresses shame and remorse. That is so right. true. They're, yeah, so. I was I was disgusted by that. To open yeah, okay. yeah, and I, and oh, oh, by the way, when the iPhone, if you go go back it and read my predictions when the iPhone actually launched, and I we all of us were predicting that it was going to be a disaster. Um, so the other thing that we actually get into that I think is important, and I'm really glad we're recording this discussion. And Adam, maybe you've got some concrete examples of where this happened. Where okay. do you know what I'm talking? Do you know what I'm about to say? No. Where someone would make a prediction, and then we would revisit it like three or six years later, and it would be totally true. And then everyone would be like, "Well, yeah, of course." Like everybody knew it. Like you were just saying yeah. what everyone believed, and it'd be like, "No, fuck you all!" Like everybody was like arguing with me about this and thought I was crazy when I made this prediction, and now it's true. I feel like that yes. happened a bunch. I, I think that happened all over the place. Uh, like I, I had one in 2007 while everyone was betting against the iPod, uh, the, the iPhone. I think I said the iPod was a major gaming platform. I don't know if that's true. Probably it's true. But, but I think there's a lot of stuff as you go back, you're like, well, either that is obviously false or obviously not, but it's, it, but you're right. Having, having some of the bickering recorded in the moment is going to be helpful to remember uh, how bold some of these predictions might be. That's right. So we can go back and figure out, like, all right, was that actually a bold prediction at the time or not? Or was, was just one kind of expressing consensus? Um, and I think, you know, in general, we, we want to err on the on the bolder side for sure. Um, and then I do think that these predictions are super revealing about the present. As I said, I mean, going back and you can see, like, something that was, and it was often, like, revealing about what was in the news, like, that week. And, you, you know, something would be in the news and, you know, half of the predictions are around, you know, itanium or around, which we definitely predicted the death of a lot. Uh, there was a lot of accurate predictions of the death of itanium. Um, so, um, and, so I think we, we, I'm really excited to do this. And, uh, and Stephen, again, I'm, thank you so much for joining us and really excited to have you. And obviously, as, as our distinguished guest, we're going to give you kind of carte blanche. I think for the rest of us, we... And I kind of tweeted out what the, the we want the rules of the road to be. Um, but we uh, would let's keep it to a one, a three, and a six-year prediction. And then, you know, often we uh, I have found that at least with my kids, um, my kids like to enforce in their siblings what they fear most in themselves. And <laughs> I I I, uh, I use that as a lead into my my restriction to one web three based prediction. You may think that that is Brian imposing a rule on Brian. I, 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 am, I am so tempted to make 80 Web3 based predictions, and yet I, I, we, I, we must resist temptation. And, but, and yet I also feel that it would be depriving, depriving ourselves of the agency to say that we can't have any Web3 based predictions. So that's what I'd like to say. I'd like to say everyone gets, you have at most one Web3 based predictions. You are, of course, welcome to have zero Web3 predictions. 
Stephen, as I made clear when I tweeted out the ground rules, these rules do not apply to you, especially the Web3 based predictions. You may go off on a Web3 tirade as long as you want. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely one of them in there for sure. All right, um, but I only I only have the three, so okay. All right, I'm not gonna take up the floor. I'm not gonna take up the floor. Okay, and then so one, three, and six. Uh, one on web mo- at most one on web three at most one talking your book, and I'm gonna treat that like by that. That's a kind of a, that's a, a VC expression or an investor expression when people are talking about something that they're invested in. Um, I, I'll leave everyone else to kind of everyone to figure out what that means um, because clearly we all have particular interests and, and domains of expertise and so on. So um, don't take that one too, too literally. Um, and then other than that, I mean, raise your hand to jump in. And then I would also say that um, I, I encourage folks to write down their predictions in advance. Um, please open a poll request on the notes. Uh, Cole, wherever Cole is, has done such a terrific job on the show notes, but I think let's say let's each of us have responsibility for writing down our own predictions and getting those in the repo. So on that, Adam, any any other opening remarks? So, so Brian, I am not a co-host, um, but I'd be oh, happy oh, to, oh, 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 to un- unmute and do that for stuff. But I, I think uh, that was an accident. Everyone should. Yeah, I got it now. Thank you. Um, everyone should. Uh, if you if you got some predictions in mind, uh, put up your hand uh, and we'll start unmuting you and, and give you the floor. And I, Stephen, I sent you a co-host invite as well, so you can unmute people as well. Um, and also, it, would, it will also be invaluable when my Android cl- client runs out of memory and I am forced to reboot. So, <laughs> um, all right, Stephen, with that, do you want to do you want to lead us off here? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I don't think uh, I don't think I've probably done these in the the exact spirit that Brian intended because they're not I'm not going to make any. Well, I don't know. Maybe the Web3. Uh, again, the well, rules but... do not apply to you, Stephen. You can do whatever you want. Okay. So I'll go through the – I'll go through one year, three year, six year. Um, so the one year – and this is uh, probably going to sound like equivocation, but I just haven't given enough thought to, to sort of apply any quantitative metrics to it. But um, I will say in a year, uh, people are going to look at AWS differently than they do today. Um, and there's a couple of different reasons for that, a million reasons for that, but um, a couple of the sort of most pressing ones are uh, some of the pressure you know, coming from the egress pricing. I think I saw Rachel, um, uh, my colleague is on, um, so maybe she's got some predictions there. Um, they have been seeing some employee defections. Uh, you know, many of you have probably seen these um, that are tied to comp. Uh, theoretically, that's being changed. We'll see. There is um, sort of a fundamental uh, issue that they're facing in terms of uh, preferences from a developer experience standpoint. Um, And so that's leading to some interesting questions for them internally in terms of what they build, how they build it, uh, how they target the market. And, you know, some of those themes are being targeted, you know, sort of actively by uh, alternative platforms, right? So, you know, when I talked about this in the wake of, of reInvent, um, a couple of folks, Joe Emerson, uh, who else, Simon Wilson, a number of other folks sort of basically stood up and were like, hey, you know, we want, you know, sort of the experience of a Vercel, right? And if you give that to me, um, it would be happy. So I'm not going to put any metrics on it. Um, AWS is a juggernaut. They will certainly be a juggernaut a year from now, but I think they will be viewed, let's say, differently by the market. And so in in particular, in terms of developer experience, sounds like the emphasis, but I mean, different facets, but you think developer experience is one. I guess the the Vercel contrast is an interesting contrast. 
Yeah. So the so the interesting thing to me about the developer experience, you know, vis-a-vis AWS in particular, right? So they are the company more than any other company in the market. Um, you know, beginning way back in in '06, you know, when uh, March and August was it uh, March uh, S3 dropped, um, August um, EC2 dropped, and you know that set the the sort of cloud market in motion, right? So um, that was the sort of characteristic, the defining characteristic, as it were, uh, of the market to date, right? Has been. You know, we, we forget this now, but the primitives um, were at the time, you know, competing with, you know, sort of abstractions, you know, Google App Engine, Force.com, you know, later on, you know, things like uh, Heroku and, and, and so on. And, you know, we all know what happened, right? You know, Amazon and, and its primitives approach you know, took over the market. And that's what everybody is sort of, um, that, that's the path that everybody has followed uh, since then. And um, they're in a position now where, there are so many of them, right? You're talking hundreds and hundreds of services and developers are in a position where the experience of using them is, is problematic, right? Um, you know, how do I pick all these different pieces? How do I wire them together? How do I operate that sort of on a going forward basis, right? Um, and it's been interesting because if you, I mean, with the sort of notable exception of Elastic Beanstalk, um, AWS started, you know, sort of down the path of uh, releasing some, some higher level abstractions in 2017, I think it was. Um, you know, we've seen things like Amplify, uh, Proton, App Runner, and, and so on, right? So it looked like they're going to start taking little facets of this, this experience and releasing abstractions around it. And then that came to, well, I we'll see, I guess. That came to something of a full stop this year, at least, in, you know, with, with Werner on stage, you know, with a big slide. I'm sure most of you have seen it. Primitives, not abstractions, right? Um, so... The question for AWS all along has been, we know that they can do primitives. They can do primitives better than just about anybody else. But at some point, you know, does the market, you know, begin to demand something that looks different than that and looks more like a seamless developer experience? And if that's the case, are they the people to provide it, right? Um, yeah, interesting. And it looked like they were moving in that direction. And now, um, you know, you could argue you know, the point that, you know, that that sort of slide from Werner is almost like a sort of political statement, right? So you wonder, you hear different things depending on who you talk to, uh, but you do wonder if there's, you know, sort of a lack of consensus internally in terms of whether they attack that market, how they do it. Um, So I think the net is, is that, like I said, you know, I'm not making any sort of dire Cassandra predictions. They're a juggernaut. They will remain a juggernaut uh, juggernaut a year from now. And even in a worst case scenario for them, a lot of the sort of abstractions are likely to run on Amazon, right? So they'll, they'll in many cases, make money either way. But the further they get away from uh, the developer experience themselves, because they've owned that historically, it's one of the things that has differentiated them from a lot of their, um, you know, the incumbents that were around at the time, right? You know, you think of the HPs, the IBMs, frankly, the sons of the world, right? You know, very much lack the direct relationship with the developer. Amazon was able to build that uh, totally. quite, effect- yeah. quite effectively. And so the further they get away from that, the further they are abstracted away from that market, you know, the more interesting their relationship will be. All right. So anyway, we could probably talk for, I could talk. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's good. Yeah, I like it. And looking for that tension between abstraction and primitive to, uh, sounds like we can, we will see that 
grow increasingly in tension over the next year is what you're saying. Well, but that, so that's part of it. But the interesting thing is, is that it's not just that, right? They all of a sudden are, this is the most affections I've seen in terms of their employees in a long time. Um, they are under, they're being put under substantial pressure. Some of their margins from an egress standpoint um, from Cloudflare and, and others, uh, Oracle um, are going that, uh, that route. And like I said, you have a whole host of, of folks at this point trying to attack the developer experience um, you know, cause I wrote a piece on that, let's see, a year ago, I think October. And I mean, the response to that was probably like nothing since the new Kingmakers. I mean, I had companies coming out of the woodwork saying, oh my God, yes, we're building for this. Uh, the folks from Gitpod spun up a conference around the piece. As far as I know, I don't think that's ever happened. Um, so there's a lot of attention on that problem. And if it was just that, you know, sort of Amazon would have to contend with that, particularly given their organizational structure, right. Which is very much oriented towards. We know how to build a lot of uh, completely independent parts at speed, at scale, um, but they're not organizationally set up necessarily to build these sort of higher level abstractions, right? So that's a challenge. But when you're dealing with that with, um, you know, sort of pressure around some of your margins, you know, from lucrative network traffic pricing, when you're dealing with it, you know, sort of having lost you know, sort of a wave of technical talent, you know, that's, um, you know, well, it'll be interesting to see where they are in a year. And uh, Stephen, what was the piece that you talked that you were referencing? Was that the fragmentation leads to abstract? No, no, it's a developer experience gap. Uh, developer experience gap. Okay. Yeah, I got it. Yep. October twenty twenty. That's right. Uh, okay. Yeah, October sixth, twenty twenty. Okay. Yeah. There interesting. You go. Yeah. Um. So okay, so that's one year. Okay. Um, out three years out. Uh, like this is the my my sort of um token Web three prediction. Um, I will say that Web three is the next web van. Um, <laughs> oh wait what do you mean hold on i want to <laughs> well I, I i hopefully that analogy i mean you know for those of you who are sort of more recent to the industry that that may not be a uh, uh an obvious sort of metaphor um but webvan was was not a um a notable success it was a <laughs> one of many venture efforts that uh, went into the online grocery space and they, you know, sort of, um, you know, built out this, this, they, they invested a ton of capital, you know, building out, you know, what they felt would be a brand new network of grocery delivery stores. And um, yeah, completely flamed out. And with web three, it is honestly, it's, this is sort of the most perplexing technical trend. Maybe I've seen ever. I'm trying to think it, um, I, 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 okay, expand on that. I am totally with you, and I—I I don't, I don't remember a divide. Right? Yeah, I've seen, I totally. I've seen a number of pieces sort of reference this sort of similarly, you know, which is you know you have, um, you know, people, you know, you, you'll have a sort of population, you know, sort of one hand pro and the other hand con, and you know, in many cases, these are, you know, the, the sort of the pedigree of these people is relatively equal, right? A lot, you know, people. A lot of the people on the pro side have done interesting, good work in their career and are adamantly sort of in belief that this is sort of the next thing. So, you know, to me, you know, if you sort of take it apart, I mean, can some of the pieces of technology sort of, you know, be of service and be of use? Maybe. Um, uh, you know, I will say personally, I have not seen any of them cross my desk in the way that I've seen certain other things. Um pop yet but you know look there's there's time yet but you know the bigger issue is just you know when you when you sort of sort of fundamentally think through the examples that you know people are talking about for me they just don't make 
literally any sense. Like owning <laughs> of the internet, you know, I, I'm like, do you do you understand how this works? Right? Yeah, but, but but other than that, what what would you right. say is your and, number and, two critique? And when I say well, it makes no sense, I mean the words don't parse together. I mean it is literal nonsense. It is like well, that is not a sentence. No, and the, and the funny thing to me, I'm trying to think of, well, I probably shouldn't name names, but the, um, anyway, there, there was a, one of the, the sort of higher profile backers of technology at one point where, you know, had this sort of uh, comment on Twitter, which was like, hey, you know, maybe you're comfortable with Facebook and Google and everyone else owning the servers, but, you know, personally, I'm not. And I'm like, okay, but here's the thing, like, literally <laughs> all of the market evidence we see today says that people are totally fine with that. And, yes. you know, when you decentralize that, you take a lot of the value away from these networks. Cause I, I think when I looked it up, what was it? It was like 2.1 billion people, I think on Facebook, uh, Gmail, I want to say was like a billion and a half, close to 2 billion. Anyway, you just sort of run through the numbers and it's like, uh, you know, it, it reminded me of conversations I had with Microsoft circa, I don't know, you know, probably 0304, who were trying to sell me on DRM. And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. Oh, yeah. This is this great thing. It's going to be able to protect these assets, you know, no matter where they go and so on. And I'm like, sure. And then the first time that a, a you know, sort of a grandparent gets a picture that they can't open. Yeah. Because you've secured it. Like, how, you know, how you know, far do you think this is going to go? Like, this is not going to work for normal people. And... I think in the Web3 space, um, this, uh, let's just say this experience seems to be repeating itself often. Um, I, so in, in, in some cases, at great expense. So, yeah, count me as a, uh, as a, as a, um, a big no vote. Um, so, so, you're on a, Web3. so that's your three year prediction, but that, that I think I hear in there that like, hundreds millions or hundreds of millions of dollars or tens of millions, billion, billions of dollars get invested mm -hmm. and it comes to nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Much. Exciting. Nice. Yeah. So, right. and, and I think this is also an important point about it not really having precedent in our careers because I mean, Stephen, you and Adam and I, I mean, the three of us, we've seen a lot of revolutions in this business and the, I mean, God, you must be as trolled as I am when people are like, oh, well, you must be one of those people that was against the internet. And you're like, yeah. oh, my God, I fucking That's, under the finger. No, it's no, like, dude. no. And also, like, hey, um, also, you, you, someone who, I mean, not to be generational about it, but often not alive in 1993. It's like, right. Stephen, you, you and I were bullseye in that eternal yeah. September, September 1993. I got it in the internet the year before the eternal yeah. September in 1992. There were no naysayers of the internet. Email was an obvious killer app. Yeah. Um, I'm doing what I said I would Email, I mean, I, 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 I'm honestly, so sorry. I'm, I'm I, you know, this is why I need this. There's a fine line between the policing mind and the criminal mind. And I, Sorry, I, Adam. I, we need no, to not no. spend this the whole time on Web3. I need to not like it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, well, we can get back to Web3 because I, I assume each of us has one prediction. So. That's right. Exactly. We're, we're going to get to do this rant a couple different times. That's right. So, yeah. That's All right. right. Yeah. That's your three years. Right. Steven, what's your six year? All right. So six year is a sad one for me, which is that uh -oh. um, I think uh, I think open source is going to be considerably worse off. Uh, Ooh, provocative. Tell me more. In a, in a sort of, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, and this is this is one of those difficult things that, uh, as somebody who has, um, you know, look, I didn't write 
uh, you know, sort of any of the core foundational software here. I didn't write any of the core licenses here. Um, but, you know, sort of speaking personally and, you know, certainly professionally, we have spent a lot of time, you know, over our careers trying to do things that are visible and trying to do things that in many cases are behind the scenes, um, uh, you know, work to advance the cause, right? You know, because, you know, this was, uh, you know, sort of the a, a sort of interesting juxtaposition for us and something that, you know, it makes sense if you can get sort of buy some of the politics of it, you know, for, for enterprises, but it's also um, almost universally beneficial, you know, for the developers and the practitioners that we care the most about. Right. Yeah. And, and Stephen, just to talk about your personal influence there, you absolutely played a very important role in, in terms of you had so many conversations so early with so many decision makers. About, I'm just speaking about your role in us open sourcing things at Sun. You played a really important role in Sun's disposition towards open source and the understanding that this actually was to the contrary, not a threat to the business, but was something that could be used to grow the business. You were a very early adopter on that. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think probably that the what what I would say about that is just that we were in a sort of unique position to amplify voices that knew the score, right? And in a lot of cases, Sun, sort of among other examples, there was an opportunity for us to come in, you know, and talk to to folks like yourselves. We're like, no, no, hey, look, we need to do this, we want to do this, and to be a third party to come in and say, yeah, no, these guys are right. You know, um, you know, this is the way to do it and, and so on. So, um, but so, you think in six years, so it, 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 what is it? Is it this kind of this new uh, restrictive licensing that, that makes you worried? What is yeah. it specifically so that makes you worried? So there's three things that I, I am sort of most uh, concerned about and sort of tackling them in no particular order. Uh, the licensing trends are. Um, an issue. I think that's a manageable issue. We're coming to a place where, um, you know, I can't, I can't sort of go into, well, so as background, so we talk to, we talk to all vendors. So pretty much every vendor who has sort of introduced one of these licenses, we've talked to, many of them have sort of talked to us about these decisions and um, all of them have more or less gotten the same piece of advice from me, uh, which is, this is necessary. <laughs> Here's the case why. But anyhow, um, so Stephen, when we see these co companies that are our clients of Redmuck, we should yeah. not blame you for their the adoption of these. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Pretty much, that's that's what it comes down to. Um, but you know, look, can we can we get to a place where a source available model is permissible and acceptable? Maybe, and if we can, then look, I think a lot of this thing of these licenses is taken out because. There's nothing wrong with that. I, you know, look, if you wrote a, if you wrote a piece of software or your company wrote a piece of software, they have the right to decide whatever the license is full stop. Right. And if that is a, you know, sort of proprietary license and the code never sees the light, light of day, I might disagree with that and think it's not the right decision, but that's your right. Right. The sort of issue is, you know, to me is that a lot of the folks that have gone down this path, have wanted the benefits of being open source, you know, from a marketing and a visibility and a sort of affinity standpoint and yeah. don't understand or frankly care about the collateral damage that they can do to the brand, right? Because the reason that open source works, the reason that it is adopted within enterprises is because it's understood and it's a known thing. People understand, all right, you know, it took 20 years, but now if you walk into any large shop, even a license like the GPL, which used to be sort of verboten, except in cases where they really wanted the software like Linux, 
um, you know, the GPL is, okay, fine. We know what that is. It's fine. You can use that. Right. And, you know, that sort of, all of that adoption is, you know, sort of rests upon this foundation that this is a known thing. We know what it is and we understand how it's circumscribed, right? We understand that it's not what Bill Gates said it was. It's not a cancer. It's not going to go out and infect our other software as long as we're doing, you know, the things that we would normally do. Um, so a lot of these sorts of available people um, or non-compete people, as, as Adam Jacobs might call it, uh, you know, have um, tried to blur that line. And that's a problem. That may be a solvable problem. You know, we'll see. You know, companies are getting better at this. I can't say who it was. We, we talked to a company that recently made announcements in this area, and they were very careful to say, this is open source. This is not open source, but, you know, you can get access to the source. So, um, like I said, that, that may be survivable. Um, a lot of the sort of adoption of enterprise software more broadly uh, is, you know, shifting into a service format. So, you know, software as a service implementations of um, open source software. One of the things that gets lost in cases is that, uh, you know, when companies do this and are successful at it, you know, there is, you know, sort of less and less incentive, you know, for them to contribute back and, and certainly to maintain future parity with the open source equivalents, right? So you begin to see deltas that widen and widen and widen between, you know, what the open source implementation and what the software as a service implementation can do, right? So that will, you know, potentially, you know, sort of contribute to, you know, decreased contributions, adoptions, et cetera, of open source software moving forward. But lastly, um, and this is the problem that, uh, you know, there may be a solution to it, but I don't know what it is, um, is just the fact that, um, you know, a lot of the software developers that we talk to today just don't care, right? Um, these sort of, hmm. you know, it's like, you know, if you have a personal project and you decided not to assign a license to it, it's fine, right? You know, if your intent is not for this stuff to be used, but in some cases, you know, it comes down to like, you know, um, I'm trying to think of, well, again, I probably should name it names, but, you know, there was a dispute about in sort of this, this sort of lack of license or lack of clarity around a license and source available licenses and so on. And basically what you have is, you know, sort of some, some developers today who, who don't have that history, right? Don't remember a time when open source was anything other than the default and don't remember how, you know, sort of the effort it took to get there are basically yeah. like, okay, boomer, who gives a shit? Right, exactly. Right. It's like we fought for those freedoms, son. We were. Yeah. We, 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 I was on a beach in Normandy, open sourcing the software yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, right. I know. So that's the thing is, is that when you put those things together, right? You know, when you have pressures from from largely venture backers who are pushing these licenses, um, and then you have pressure from you know business models that compete with open source, uh, in some cases quite explicitly. And then you have a generation of developers who, in a lot of cases, just doesn't seem to particularly care, you know, or be invested. That's not a super recipe for success for me longer term. So, so Stephen, what what does this look like? Because, I mean, surely you're not predicting that we go back to a a world of proprietary databases, proprietary operating systems, proprietary compilers. I mean, open source is obviously going to continue to exist, but in six years it's struggling or it's no longer, I mean, it, it is as common to have proprietary solutions. And we do, how, what does this look like? Yeah. As- so, so a couple, couple things. So first of all, I think, you know, what you'll end up seeing on the, uh, on the software as a service side, right. Is competing implementations that are sort of de facto proprietary, right. Um, it's open core played out in the sort of guise of software as a service, which is fine. If you have this tiny core functionality, yes, there's, you know, we'll release that source code to you because, you know, we don't really care. Right. Um, and it's going to seed our market and everything else, right? So I think you you will see 
more de facto proprietary software, um, you know, produced you know, sort of under that um, under that label. Depending on how the licensing questions get worked out, right? I think you could begin to see sort of blurring definitions of open source, right? So, what does that mean, sort of in practice? And you know, frankly, to the point, like, why am I concerned about it, right? So, if you think about the licenses that a lot of these companies are using, right, which is essentially, hey, this is open source except for Amazon or any of the clouds or for this weird, you know, sort of wacky use case or whatever it might be, right? Um, you know, what you end up seeing are, you know, sort of licenses which begin to introduce a bunch of different sort of, you know, sort of uh, hyper-specific concerns or issues, right? And, you know, it's funny to me that, you know, um, uh, in many cases today, the, the, they don't recognize the, the issue that this was for open source originally, right? So one of the reasons that the OSI sort of argued against, you know, sort of um, a license proliferation, right, which is the generation of more and more and more and more of these open source licenses, is because that actually slows down adoption. Because what that means is that every yeah. new project that has its every own license is a one-off review for their legal, right, for procurement. And you would think that, I mean, there were efforts to do this for sure, um, but you would think that the source available people would get together and figure out, right, do we need, do we each need our own license, right? Um, right. And but, but that's sort of antithetical <laughs> to their goal, right? I, you know, who potentially, knows, right? And it's like, no, and I talked to one of these, one of these vendors and they're like, no, no, we use the BSL. I'm like, yeah, use the BSL with your own, like three totally unique. Right. Totally unique. Like, exemptions. You know, right. Right. Like, so, so, yes, this so is not when you say source thing. available, just to clarify, do you mean like Seagate firmware where if you're Google, it's open or do you mean it's published on GitHub, but it's just got a weird ass license? Largely the latter. Right. So, so source available, it, I mean, Technically speaking, the definition, well, I'm not even actually sure who would be the arbiter of this, but in practice, when I would refer to that, and you know, sort of when I talk to companies about this, what I'm referring to is more of a, okay, um, we want to make the source code available. Um, we do not want to release it under the terms of an, o, of an OSI license because we're afraid of pick one, right? Amazon, whomever. So we're going to introduce it with this license, which basically prohibits whatever it is that, that we don't like. And um, in in those cases, like I said, I and I've written about this. Uh, God, uh, till, you know, I've written about this quite extensively. But the the gist of it is is that I don't see the justification for these licenses myself. Um, I would support, you know, sort of as the people who are responsible for the creation of these projects, if that's their prerogative, then so be it. Um, right? I think in many cases um, they substantially erred um, by changing tax, right? To, you know, so using open source in the beginning, you know, making a promise to contributors, developers, et cetera, and then sort of pulling a rug out, rug out from under them saying, ha ha, you know, we want to do something different now, but set that aside, right? So when I'm, when I'm sort of referring to source available, what I'm referring to is effectively that model, right? Which is, all right, look, I want to make this available. I want developers to be able to see it, um, you know, in, in some form or fashion, but I'm scared of, it's usually Amazon, right? So that's the definition that I'm referring to here. I have to tell you, I'm tempted to take the other side of that prediction. I'm tempted to actually predict that these wonky licenses don't really hold up and they're kind of viewed to be more complicated than they're worth and that the trend abates. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't have quite the guts to do it. 
Um, that would be great. I mean, put it this way. This is one of those predictions that I would be delighted to be wrong. Right. Um, in contrast to your Web3 prediction, which if that's not wrong, <laughs> we're gonna, I, I, that's really going to be problematic. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's what I got for you. All right, those are good. Those are those awesome. are very thought provoking. Awesome. Dave, yeah. just quickly, uh, where do you stand on the server side public license? The licenses used by MongoDB and Greylog and uh, <laughs> Elastic. Like, where where do you stand on that? As, as a... uh, I think I think those licenses are a unnecessary and b strongly problematic. Um, and I would further say that you know one of the things that with the SSPO in particular, one of the things that gets lost is the version. Um, so, you know, I'm trying, I don't want to go through the, the sort of whole backstory here, but so Mongo submitted the SSPL to the OSI and try to get it through you know, it certified as an, well, uh, agreed upon as an open source license. And to, you know, in the midst of this process, they, they, um, revised it, right. You know, so they had a different version of the license, which, you know, tried to sort of narrow it down and, and so on. Um, that's not the license that actually is in practice today because, when it became clear that the OSI, and to be you know to be totally fair to Mongo, the OSI at that point, and still arguably, but certainly at that point, had a totally broken review process. Right, you know the process of doing this was um, is very problematic for a number of different reasons. Right, you know, so it's not as if the OSI is blameless here. But um, the net here is that um, they, when it became clear the the license was the SSPL was the revised version was not going to be approved. Um, they abandoned that process, and you know the version of of the SSPL applied today. Um, I, I would just suggest that you go read that license. I think it's, I want to say it's section thirteen. Um, and yeah, I would, yeah, I, I will, <laughs> I will say, um, I am not a fan of any of those licenses. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of the important thing to me is, is basically how the companies talk about them. That's the most important piece. So in other words, if you want to have a license that says, look, if you do, you know, if you, Amazon or whomever is doing this thing that I don't like, then you have a lot of problems. Right. Like I said, I don't think that's necessary or whatever, but it's their right to do that. The difficulty that the, the biggest problem for open source is when people begin to confuse that with open source. Right. And some of these companies have been good about making that clean delineation and some of these companies have not right some of these companies use open source and source available interchangeably so what that means ultimately is is that when you play this out over the longer term um you know what you what you potentially end up with is a scenario where people begin to you know hear hey this is an open source license and they go read things like this and they're like whoa like this is what open source is like this is not for me this is not going to work i'm going to go to you know pick pick something up uh software as a service implementation you know, piece where I don't really care, you know, because the license is uh, not applicable, you know, given I'm not operating the service myself. So, yeah. Stephen, I is would like to say- Is this actually a problem? Is okay. what- Really, it, at the end of the day? It, 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 Matt, in terms of like the proliferation of them, or is the, what do you mean by, is it a problem? I mean, the, the proliferation of them doesn't seem to strike me as really being an issue. <sighs> well, here's the thing, the proliferation- I wish it weren't. The, the proliferation of them, you can actually argue it both ways, right? So on the one hand, you know, you can make the argument, um, and I think there's a reasonable argument about this, that the proliferation of them actually will sort of impede their usage, right? Because if they had one and it was consistent, you know, that's the kind of thing that actually, you know, sort of decreases the friction to using the software covering it, right? Because you're like, okay, my legal team can, can review one of these licenses. I can't review five or 10 or whatever it might be. 
But the flip side is, is that the more companies that do this, um, and we've seen this in practice, right? You know, the first couple of these came pretty slowly and were huge deals and, you know, generated a ton of controversy, but each one, you know, decreases the friction for the next company doing the same and the next company doing the same and the next company doing the same. And so that to me is, is certainly a problem. It it is a problem. And I would have, by the way, Matt, I was kind of with you in that I didn't really, I'm like, is the proliferation of this, but all of a sudden it went from a handful of companies to this being so broadly accepted that it really was becoming ubiquitous very, very quickly. So I think the proliferation is a problem for whatever it's worth. But also at the end of the day, if it really matters to you when you're deploying it, you're not going to be running on the open source stack. You're going to go and have purchasing, send them a purchase order for, you know, the, the whatever the heck you want to public license. And now you have the rights to do whatever you want because you're not Amazon, right? And, and dual licensing and things like that. That's the argument. Basically a null the yeah, whole point. Right? Exactly. But here's the thing, sort of play, play that out though, right? So in other words, for, for companies like totally, you know, they, you know, the, the argument for if you go and talk to any of these vendors, the thing they will tell you is it doesn't really matter. They buy their way out of the license with a commercial agreement, blah, blah, blah. True. Uh, at least true in, in many cases. Um, will be It'll be interesting to see sort of how some of the enforcement, um, uh, you know, may take place, you know, with some of these licenses down the line. But anyway, that, that's speculation on my part. Um, the bigger problem in, in sort of the short term is. You know, basically what you get is that's a world which is, you know, pretty friendly, you know, from a um, enterprise buyer perspective. But to the extent that that begins to eat into the adoption, usage, circulation, currency relevance of the average open source license, that's a net negative for developers, in my view, because all of a sudden they will have to, you know, the, the sort of situation for developers historically has been. Okay, look, if I want to go build something, say I'm Google, right? I can go use even a, a reciprocally licensed asset like Linux, make my own modifications, but I'm not distributing it, so I don't trigger the license, and I don't really have to worry about this stuff. These licenses are, are a known thing. If you get to a world in which, you know, the, a larger and larger and larger share of these, these, you know, of the total licenses for projects are these, you know, one, totally fragmented and totally individual um other licenses, right, that are not open source. And two, they have, you know, sort of, um, you know, different qualifications or different, you know, sort of restrictions attached to them. That becomes more and more problematic if you want to be the next Google or whomever, because all of a sudden you have to contend with a lot of licenses that, frankly, you know, they haven't been sort of vetted. And like I said, yes. if you go read some of these things. They're nuts. They're, they're, they, they are. So I actually, the one thing I wanted to put an asterisk on, Stephen, is that you said that, uh, companies have the right to do this. It, that is actually not clear to me, honestly. And I think that the they are pushing the bounds of the law, I think. And I, it would be very interesting to see one of the, Of course, with the, we haven't even had the GPL be really seriously court tested. It, right. But it, it would be interesting to see if one of these... Uh, one possibility is that one of these large companies is like, hey, you know what? We actually know that we are technically violating the terms of your license, and uh, we actually don't think you've got the right to do that. We actually think that that exceeds the right of the copyright holder, and um, you, you're trying to enforce a EULA that we never agreed to. Um, you just put this thing up on GitHub, we downloaded it, and fight us. Um, yeah. And um, it would be interesting to see kind of how that... But all right, Steve, that's a good prediction, albeit a sad one. I hope you're wrong. <laughs> yes. I hope I'm wrong, too. That'd be good. 
Uh, Laura, I saw you jumping in here. Do you have? Um, I, I'm worried that your predictions could get super dark. Is that? Um, is that? Where do you think that's coming? <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know where could that possibly be coming from. I don't know. Maybe your DefCon talk. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. We'll see. Okay, so for one year, I have um, uh, Discord ends up um, uh, annoying its user base or just generally pissing off its user base. So Discord is kind of fascinating yeah. to me in terms of being a chat platform and of course it's but the thing is that i think what i think it's under sold is that it's not just another chat platform it's a way for you to be able to have individuals to have their own private chat platforms in a way that it's just super easy to be able to spin up just because the only thing comparable i could always think of was someone having to like spin up their an irc server which it turns out that it takes work to run an irc server whereas discord just sort of lets you do that and anyone can do this and it's kind of amazing this is this that this has grown but it's really the i kind of wonder about what discord's growth model is actually going to be there was talks about they're supposed to be acquired by microsoft but then it sounded like those talks fell through so then naturally it seems like well ipo may be in the business for that which never really seems to do good things to a product so regardless of whether they end up acquired or ipoing or something i just have this hunch that discord is going to do something that's just going to annoy, annoy massive amounts of their user base Okay, so that's really interesting. And is you're right about is it, Adam? Are you aware of this? But the kind of ubiquity of just it is amazing what Laura's yes. saying. Yes. Is the, so literally, oh, in my house over the weekend was Susanna, my nine year old, calling out to her fourteen year old brother. I want you to get back on the Discord right now. And I'm like, back? back what? <laughs> wait, wait. Wh what's going on in my house? There's a Discord server in my house that my kids are all like. You know, they always say there's there's always a chat that is happening that doesn't include you, and it's a Discord in my house. So, Laura, I, the, it, 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 it's amazing to me how ubiquitous it is, but you think that they are kind of losing track of some of what has propelled them to where they are? It, it's not clear if they're losing track or if it just seems like the I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop, for them to just screw up something. I mean, I'm not rooting for them to do this, of course, but it's like the, the nature of where these things go, just because I wonder exactly how they're going to be able to keep going and, and what their stuff is. I mean, custom emojis are great, but it's not clear what, what their model is going forward. Laura, I really like your, they get acquired and this happens. A uh, little prelude for next week. A another way this could happen is they make an acquisition and that's what screws up their user base. Yeah, the acquisition, they, they, they acquire poison. That, uh, that's, that's, uh, yeah, it, that's a, all right, Laura, that's a really interesting one. That's, yeah, a, really that's, good. A, that's a good one. Um, uh, I was wondering if I could just, uh, just on the subject. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. It, uh, is this on the, the Discord event, or do I want to get to yeah, Laura's yeah. three? Yeah, go ahead. Um, they, a while back, uh, in, the, on the, in the vein of them maybe screwing up their whole thing, is that they, <laughs> uh, the CEO tweeted something about, oh, maybe we're going to do crypto, maybe we're not, and build it straight into the product. <laughs> and a lot of people got really mad really fast to the point where, like, they... And, like, who knows if it's just, like, internet mobs or whatever thinking that they did something, but they're like, oh, we're all canceling our Nitro subscriptions, which is, like, one of the primary ways they make money, and it was the okay, whole I, thing. I, 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 would, I would like to say that that is a very tantalizing way that Laura's prediction could come true, but, Laura, this does not count as your Web3 prediction. So the the the, the web three spin <laughs> on this prediction, you are still you still have, as far as I'm concerned, a web three prediction to give in your in your three things. But but that's a very good point in terms of like that could be a you could imagine that kind of thing. Imagine that, that would really rile up a user base. All right, Laura, what's your uh, what's your three year? Okay, three year. I have we finally get a risk five server 
in a data center. Ooh, exciting. But, but, but I'm going to put this with some caveat is that there, there's going to be something that is finally going to arrive in a data center, but I, I don't know exactly if that means it's actually going to be successful or if that just means in, in ubiquitous or if that just means that something finally arrives in a data center in a server. Just because I think so far we've seen that risk five has shown a lot of progress, but nothing is really panned out to be able to, to, to deliver anything. And I think it's still a, a little bit too early, at least for the hardware side of things and for still trying to come up with, with the standards. So, so in- okay, you, you are in very good company there because I ended up predicting that ARM was going to be a thing on its server. And this was like in, I'd have to go back and look, like 2010 or 2011. And I, I mean, I was right. It just took like a decade. So. <laughs> well, and Laura, just, just for future generations of, of uh, you know, legal scholars looking over this, you said, you said RISC-V in a data center. You didn't say a RISC-V server. <laughs> are you are you like Laura's lawyer? No, are you, no, repre- are saying, you representing so, but, future Laura? No, 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 sort of. So I, I just want to make it clear for future generations. Uh, but but yours, but that might be uh, like an embedded storage processor or something like that. But not like if well, we were to switch our uh, you know from ARM to Risk Five. Yeah, I mean, I this th- could be this could be a Risk V uh, Risk Five uh, BMC, for example. Uh, I don't think that's what Laura's. Pre- I don't think that's Laura's. Yeah, picture, the I think Risk Laura- Five that's in your hard drive doesn't count. Laura. Well, but I but I would expect that 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 if we were talking something like actually in a well technically in a data center, I think we'd be possibly seeing that much sooner. But yeah, yeah I assume right. that Laura, but by by that you meant a a data center class part. Oh, Matt, I'm gonna mute you. Um, the uh, you mean like a a modern uh, aggressive process? What would today would be a seven nanometer or five nanometer process uh, that is consumes a lot of power, high clock many cores. Is that a, is that a fair statement? Yeah. yeah nice. Nice. That's a great That's exciting. I, I, Hang on. On that note, I've got a one up that. Um, six year prediction. There is a risk five supercomputer in the top 500. Ooh, there we go. That's a good one. I like that one. Yeah. All right, Laura, that's, that, that's a great prediction. What's your, uh, do you have a six year? Uh, okay. So six year is that, um, email goes the way of the landline. It's still going to be around, oh. it's going to be used, but it's not going to be popular. It's just going to be falling off. Email is dying, honestly. And anything other than trying to use something like Gmail just seems to be a nightmare to be able to get to work. I mean, you either have, you basically have divergence. You have either everyone's on Gmail or something like that, or they're running their own boutique uh, mail server some, somewhere. And I mean, trying to get these two to interact is just a, a nightmare. I, I think it's going to go the way to, of the I, I feel like Stuart Butterfield just joined this call. That is a great prediction, though. And I, Laura, I also love the way you're phrasing it in terms of like, like landlines still exist. It's email will obviously exist in six years. It's just that it will be the way like, yeah, I use email to, you know, for these kind of to communicate with my teacher, but not something or maybe not even that. Um, that's that feels very uh, that could like. Very chilling, and that could be very accurate. That's a great prediction. Yeah, I, really mean, good one. I don't have an Use email to communicate with CI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe GitHub's notifications are a way to get me to delete my email address like earlier rather than later because I know I need to manage my notifications later, but hold better. But holy God, that thing gets a lot of notifications. But yeah, I have no idea what exactly will replace email, but I'm just guessing for the here that it's going to be on the, on the decline. 
Yeah. Well, I think that the uh, assuming that Discord has not completely lost its user base in your one year prediction, um, I think that the kind of the instant messaging platforms seem to be replacing a lot of what the value that email brought. Yeah, which has its pluses and minuses there, I think, in terms of, of the uh, what exactly and once again, get into the argument of what's an open standard and everything there, which is a, another can of worms. But. Well, Laura, those are three great predictions, and I had no reason to fear. None of those were related to the world being rooted in us all being. So that was uh, that none of them had to do with security vulnerabilities. I'm really impressed. <laughs> well, you told her not to do the things that were 100% going to happen. Ah, there we go. Well played. Well played. That's it. That's it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Maybe those aren't exciting because we know that there are future vulnerabilities are out there. Um, all right. Who's uh, Sophia? I saw you. Uh, did, you asking to join? Do you have some predictions? What? What? What's happening? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I I do have some predictions, so I could go next. Go uh, for it. Yeah. Yep. Um, I don't have a one year, uh, but I have a three and a six for the three year. Um, I think that uh, due to CCPA copycat laws in other U.S. states possible uh, US federal legislation plus changing uh, global regulatory environment, there will be uh, GDPR-like protections uh, kind of rolled out globally across most big players' user bases without them being geofenced. Um, I think okay. this, will also, this will also have impacts on, on SaaS adoption. So um, the more you spread data around, it makes things like right to amendment and right to deletion of the GDPR harder to implement. Um, so I think that there'll be more in-housing of, of uh, uh, software solutions rather than uh, an increased proliferation of, of usage of SaaS services. Yeah, and that's really interesting. So when you do you mean like GDPR like regulation at a state level inside the U.S. or federal le- level regulation or maybe so, all of the uh, above? Yeah, so I, I, I think that well, CCPA is the first step that we've seen along that path where California has rolled out some GDPR-like legislation. Uh, I think that Colorado has passed something similar to CCPA and uh, a number of the other larger states have um, similar legislation kind of in the pipe. Um, I think that it's going to take a, a while for it to hit critical mass on the number of states and or uh, some federal legislation being rolled out. But... Um, you could see that, you know, between California and New York, Texas, um, for example, or maybe Florida, uh, you could start to get to a point where a majority of your users need these protections, at which point it doesn't make as much sense for players to geofence those protections to particular locations. Instead, it, it becomes easier from a maintenance standpoint to just give the same protections to everyone. Yeah, interesting. That's really interesting. I, yeah, it's a good prediction. I like it. And you said that's a three-year prediction. That's a three-year prediction, yeah. Okay. Um, and then at a six-year, I've got a RISC-V chip in a mainstream phone, likely a Samsung phone, as in mm. the main the main chip driving the, that that device. Um, I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. One is like um, Samsung is going to have a, a decent amount of fab uh, experience at that point for for RISC-V chips. Uh, where they, they, they will have experience building lower power chips and they'll be able to iterate on that. And then I think the other kind of factor there is that um, 
phone upgrade times and life cycles is, are getting longer where people are hanging on to their phones for longer and the pace of innovation is kind of slowing down a little bit, which means that risk 5 isn't really going to be uh, chasing a moving target as much as it would have been in the previous, say, three to five years um, or, say, even the previous six years, right? So at the six years from now, it was, it's a lot more feasible for... Um, uh, a risk five uh, uh, processor to be able to be competitive in that market. Nice, a lot of risk five hype. Love it. Yeah, well, it'll be the, um, the, the success of risk five in the data center in three years is going to propel it onto the phone. Which is, I, <laughs> that's right. Those are great predictions, Ian. Um, all right, um, Vint, you want to go next? Thanks for raising your hand. That that really helps for us to know who's got predictions. What do you have, Vint? Yeah, hey, this is Zach. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll follow up with uh, more sort of political predictions, but I'll caveat this with just why I'm talking about this specifically, specifically the antitrust field. Um, I, <laughs> uh, I'm an expert in antitrust. I got, there's a New York Times article about it, about uh, some research I did on Google and web crawling. And so I'm not speaking I'm trying, I'm just, I guess I'm trying to establish authority. Like I'm not just some programmer talking about antitrust. I, I know a fair amount. I watch it uh, fairly closely. Zach, so, are you accusing that, programmers about speaking about things with authority and which they have absolutely no understanding? Uh, I, I'm sure. Yes. It's happened <laughs> once or twice. Right. Yes. Um, so I'll just, I guess my one year prediction for antitrust is that we're not going to see much. Uh, it looks like the antitrust bills in Congress are fairly well locked up. Um, there's a New York Times article about how there's a lot of noise uh, <laughs> last year. Um, and, and just to and, edge, it, it, this is antitrust specifically in social media, in, in cloud computing. The, I mean, we do, we, where the they, whole, well, I'll say the tech industry in general. Okay. Uh, but sort of the American economy, right, in particular. Um, I don't think that the, if the bill gets passed next year, this year, fuck, it's 2020, sorry, or 2022, um, I think it's going to get fairly watered down, and I don't know if it's going to make it past the midterms, like the general hubbub that's going to start happening very soon. Um, so I, I'm somewhat pessimistic, pessimistic on the legislative side that things are going to happen, and on the executive side, I'm more optimistic that a lot of stuff's going to try to happen, but I'm still kind of... <laughs> A little, a little skeptical because Lena Khan, fantastic, really great uh, chairwoman of the FTC. Really excited to see her there. Uh, really about the most aggressive pick that uh, the administration could have picked. But that's after 20 to 30 years, depending on how you count it, of not really, of the FTC not really doing anything at all, right? Of, of deciding, of declining to do much of anything. Interesting. And so there's like a lot of staff turnover, actually, of people just like, <laughs> she she rolls in and a lot of like uh more senior people are just like you know what i think i'm gonna go into the industry i really don't like where the directions is going and there's sort of a talent drain and it's talent that wouldn't have gotten along with her anyway which is why they're leaving but it's a talent drain nonetheless so i think it's kind of a rebuilding year and also they don't have the funds that they need to to pursue a lot of the stuff that they're trying to do so i think they're probably they're gonna get some they like they definitely got the they uh, interceded in the NVIDIA merger 
Um, but I think that's kind of how they're going to have to do it is they're not going to be able to do as many of the, they can't do everything. They have to pick and choose. And I think they're going to try to go after the big guys and the big guys know that they can kind of overwhelm this for a while with a lot of money. Right. And, like, and uh, is, all right. So does NVIDIA arm go through? I think, yeah. Uh, NVIDIA arm. Couldn't tell you, to be honest. Oh, come on. Predictions. We're making predictions. you got to predict. Okay. We, we, uh, we... No, I'll say it doesn't, but it'll take five years to know. Okay, so that is a six-year prediction. That, that You think it's going to take five years for NVIDIA yeah, every, ARM to no, not go through? No, every antitrust case, every major antitrust case that you can read about in the tech industry takes like a decade. But so do you think that would that mean – because the NVIDIA acquisition of ARM is very germane to the industry, and that's why I yeah. want to I, I kind of peg you down on that one. Um, yeah. The – um, do you think that it goes through and results in litigation? Or do you think it will? I mean, because if it's held in limbo for five years, it will fall apart. One would that's assume. That's that's kind of what I'm thinking. Is that okay? Like they they like they have they're going to pick and choose their battles, right? And they picked this one, and they're going to stick with it. And well, and this is where you get to like these predictions yeah. kind of being linked because honestly, yeah. Nvidia acquiring ARM. It's pretty germane for risk five. Absolutely, yeah. So interesting. Okay, so one year, nothing on antitrust. Nvidia uh, arm dead after five. Wait, wait, do you have a three, three or six? I guess my my feeling is like we're not gonna like. You're gonna see some big stuff. Really, what we saw during uh, sort of the micro the story around the Microsoft antitrust case was that not much came out of the Microsoft anti stuff antitrust stuff, right? Uh, but there was a chilling effect within Microsoft and that's why they didn't immediately send assassins to kill Larry and Sergey, right? Like in the crib, <laughs> uh, which sure, maybe that's maybe what Microsoft's people are telling them. It's a, you know, obviously multi-billion dollar case, but I think probably <sighs> there might be like a, the thermometer in the merger and acquisitions department at Google might they might have to crank it up a little bit because it's going to get chilled. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're yeah, going to yeah. maybe back off on some stuff. Like, the Giphy ask the, and like, this is the American context, but in the global context, like the UK CMA telling Facebook to unacquire Giphy definitely is a big chill, <laughs> right? So, mm -hmm. I think, like, maybe there won't be as many aqua hires slash like big companies bailing out little companies that don't have a business model. So is it, is it fair to say that your three-year prediction is that this will have a chilling effect, that FTC enforcement will have a chilling effect? The general push for antitrust is going to have a chilling effect, yes. Okay. I don't think, like, in comparison, I don't think that there's going to be, like, an antitrust GDPR moment in the sense of, like, I remember GDPR was the first time me and my coworkers working on a database were like, oh, uh, <laughs> this is something, this is a piece of legislation that we have to care about. Right, right. In our, in our you know decade-long career whatever and then uh, uh, do you have a six-year prediction in the same in the same vein uh i think section 230 probably lives uh, makes uh -huh. it through the, the entire thing i think there's no everybody's mad at it but they aren't mad at it for the same reasons and so there might be some small modific modifications but i don't think that the people who are mad at it like it's just they're two different I don't see it coalescing into a thing where they strip it, but that's not my area of expertise. It's just sort of a sense of like, when push comes to shove, they're going to try to strip it in different ways. And I don't think that that happens because 
there's too much money involved with it, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think it's just the thing that people complain about for six years, and then they move on to something else. Interesting. All right, good pred- good uh, good predictions. I have the Nvidia ARM prediction, I think, especially again, especially Jermaine for for us. Um, uh, let's see. I think uh, Aaron, you were you were next. Yeah, so my prediction is that what's coming is single-node computing. And there's a bunch of people who are going to suddenly have this realization that we're doing a lot of these distributed system works, and we are paying enormous overheads, turning every function call into a network round trip. And there's going to be this realization of, oh, like, one server can do a lot of work. And I think in one year, we're going to see a lot of people pushing the, hey, you should be doing your business analytics jobs by just pulling all the data onto one computer on the hard drive right there and do the calculation and then get an answer and it'll run like a hundred times faster. Interesting. And so what do you, uh, what buzzword do you, is this node three? What do we call this for this to become a, uh, I like single node computing. I like single node computing. Yeah, that's good. It's okay. Like, as opposed to serverless, it's like one server. Right. Nice. I, one, uh, one better than serverless. My three year <laughs> is that this is going to lead to people talking about microservice inlining and be like, so we've got all these microservices, but I'm going to bring all the microservices onto one box and run them together and like statically link your microservice into the same binary so you can just like call the function so that we'll do the thing. Oh my God. Here Um, I thought Laura was going to be the one with the dark predictions. So I I think one year is single node computing for batch analytics. Three years is microservice (laughs) inlining where we actually have our microservices running in the same computer that's calling it and things get a hundred times faster. And that by six years, we've actually are coming around to doing scaling properly where people think not just, oh, how do I make this big data and scale up to infinity? But how do I actually make sure I'm getting the most I can possibly get work done on one node? And then what is the most I can get done in the rack? And then when should I be actually going to data centers and actually thinking about, oh, a node, a rack, a data center, and the globe are four different things. Wow. It's not just distributed. So you are, I mean, this is a six-year prediction for common sense. This is very, very gutsy here. <laughs> I, this, is, this is the gutsiest prediction. I think that, that, that's great, though. I love the, the single-node computing. That does feel very right. That feels very... Um, and now, when the, the microservices are inline, the inline microservice movement... Oh, yeah. Does if that... you replace Cassandra with SQLite, you'll be amazed with the speed-up. Oh, I absolutely agree with Isn't that. There... I, I, I cannot tell. I can't tell you the number of times we were tempted to do literally exactly that with those specific names of like, can't this Cassandra be replaced with SQLite? Yeah, isn't that what we used to just call writing a program? That's right. Exactly. That's correct. That's great. Right, good. A good series of predictions, Aaron. Those are those are terrific. Um, Matt, I think you were uh, you were next. Yeah. So I am going to say for. Uh, I guess I'll start with the six years since I kind of jumped the gun on that one. Um, one risk five, at least one risk five supercomputer in the top five hundred within six years. That's a great um, prediction. You know, especially because once you start to realize that x eighty six assembly and ARM assembly are in fact a high level language, um, yeah. and that they do not represent anything underneath, I see next to no reason that anyone should go paying for the abstractions there. Well, I also like your prediction around the supercomputer, too, because that does feel th- there are a lot of economic reasons why you would expect that to be an early place for it to be to see that kind of use. Right. And unlike, say, um, 
Oxide Rack V2, which is going to be <laughs> running mostly um, the same sort of enterprisey workloads to whoever you figure out who to sell these things to. Um, you know, there is there there's just a lot less <clears throat> need to run completely random legacy applications from 1986, totally. right? Totally. Yeah. Um, and you have postdocs who are a, a labor force that you have that is captive effectively. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the real true benefit of open source is that you get the work of a thousand unpaid graduate students across the world working on your project if you can convince them it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> the, like, the interesting thing is that I'm not sure how far RISC-V scales beyond about six years, just because I think they've done some things in the way it's designed that are just going to completely, like, kneecap it as it grows. Interesting. Um, so, like, maybe 15-year prediction, RISC-V is in the same sentence as MIPS. Um, <laughs> yeah. I... Um, just because the whole modular ISA concept, it turns out you really can't shrink the ISA post-facto. And I also think that maybe you've got the same concern that certainly I've got about the reproprietorization of Risk Five, and encouraging proprietary firmware and so on is a real problem. So a good six-year prediction. What do you have for three years? Uh, for three years, <clears throat> I think we are probably going to see some level of daylight in terms of open FPGAs. Um, in that, to be more specific and to be more bold, because heck, why the heck not? Um, we are going to see a contemporary equivalent level FPGA, equivalent to like an ultrascale plus type FPGA with completely open tool chain or at least much more open tool chain than we see today. Um, Amen. And may I read to you, and Matt, I'm getting a little bit of feedback from you. So I'm just going to mute you when you're talking. Uh, the, just mute yourself when you're not talking. But the uh, I'm going to read to you verbatim my six-year prediction. One of the top three FPGA manufacturers has adopted a deliberate all-open strategy, bringing a Linux-like democratization of soft logic. So you and I have got I, – that's a six-year for me, but it sounds like you made a very similar three-year kind of prediction. Um, so, Stephen, this is going – this is a, a counterpoint to your, uh, your gloomy open source, uh, but the – looking towards open FPGAs. I, I, Matt, I definitely agree. It feels like we're close to an important moment. I hope you're right. I will say that much. Yeah. Uh, I would not necessarily agree with you on the top three point. Um, this strikes me as something that's probably more likely to bubble up as a startup than it is to come down from the top, just because the closedness of Xilinx and Altera's tools is just so intrinsic to their DNA that, like, to be clear, I said I, but the, my prediction is one of the top three in six years. So I actually oh, think. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll give you that one. <laughs> and then, what's your uh, what? What do you have for a one-year prediction? Um, are you familiar with Framework, the laptop company? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I actually have one. My my son installed Linux on it uh, over this last vacation. You know, honestly, my probably my going prediction is that they are ultimately unsuccessful. <laughs> well, I'm gonna no. go get some. Hold on, oh I'm gonna go get God. some spare parts right now. Pardon me. <laughs> you really walked out of into that one. Jeez. Do you love it, Adam? Because if you love it, I really want to. I want. I want you to be here for this prediction. Well, cool. I, want... yeah, I mean, you, you know, the it's Jam. It's like an open source or like a, kind of an open platform where you can repair it yourself. And it's very cool when you when you get it 
you open it up and like every component has QR codes and you can scan it and it'll tell you how, you know, not to zap your dims and how this to looks great. Yeah. It's, it's a really cool box. I mean, very much in the, in the oxide ethos, um, you know, not as, as ambitious on some things like the, the main board still looks like sort of a normal, you know, collection of components, but it's a, a lot of it's open. A lot of the components are open. You can replace things that break, which is pretty nifty. I think that's great. I don't I mean, care well, about things going to die. Too, too bad my, it's going to fail, right? My, my going counterpoint to that is not that the fact that it's open is problematic. It's that really it is not substantially different enough from what is out there already to be compelling. Um, you know, the... It, just they, not they enough go and they claim right. that this is all open and it turns out that like m.2 ssds are m.2 ssds right um, and like you know it turns out that a couple of laptop makers decided to solder down lpddr ram and then framework decided hey let's not do that and call ourselves heroes um but like if you crack open the majority of laptops in the market they are not substantially different with the exception that like they don't have a massive hype train about open hardware um, this looks pretty cool, though. I I'm like I want to get one of these for my kids. This this that looks good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right in that. Like right now, they are default debt, right? Like they are, they they need to achieve a, a new kind of success. Um, man, I, if if I were betting my hopes and and not my money, I I definitely bet on them. Yeah, uh, Tom, I saw, and then I I Tom, I saw you'd raised your hand earlier. Do you have uh, do you have some predictions? Then and, and then I want to get to ten cow. Sure, thanks, Brian. Um, I promise to be quick. Um, and my my predictions, I think if they do arrive, even then they'll be way overdue. Uh, one year, I think that at least two of the large cloud providers will become startlingly good at partnering mm. um, and surprise us all. Uh, three year, uh, stable coins will become regulated. That's my sort of Web three ish. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, okay, no. So the, the stable coins become regulated in that re- act of regulation. Do they kind of fall apart, or do they actually become part of? Yeah. Okay. Just yeah. checking. Phew. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I, I, you know, I, I think that there are regulators already who who view them in the same light that um, you know there was a I can't remember the code name for it, but that that project during the war where uh, Hitler. Um, <laughs> took on printing bunches of five pound notes and planned to drop them, you know, uh, throughout the UK in order to try and destabilize the currency. I mean, oh, we're great. getting to that point. So, yeah. Uh, yes. And six year, um, my six year is the biggest um, outside of the, you know, the, the clouds, the biggest data center server provider will be a company that hasn't sold any servers yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that prediction. And six I, years isn't soon enough. Six years isn't soon enough. That's great. That's a great prediction. I love that prediction. <laughs> Talk in our book. Right, exactly. Well, listen, you can't predict your book, but you can predict someone else's book. That's okay. We welcome that. That's great. Those are great predictions. And Tom, just your first prediction, you said that the, the cloud providers will be partnering. Is that I want to understand that one a little bit better. Yeah, I think, I think that um, uh, e- even, you know, with vendors whose services complete directly with some of their own offerings they'll they'll deeply partner yeah interesting that's really interesting um 
good. All right, those are those are uh, those are good predictions. Especially love that six year. That six year is great. Um, as long as it's well, anyway, uh, that's a great prediction. All right, um, uh, Tenko, what do you what do you got? Hi. All right. Um, yeah, I think for my first prediction, I want to be a little bit bold uh, and something I don't have any authority on, so it's going to be good. Um, I think multiple companies will have demonstrated a general intelligence one-shot machine learning system. Is that, so is that I think that's, that's in, in a year? I, oh, so yeah, no, we're, yeah. Oh, I think we're, we're so close doing... to this that it's <laughs> within one year. Okay. Okay. Multiple companies. Yeah. <laughs> it, that's bold. Uh, yeah. Um, and it, it, for my, so, oh, so yes. it, it happened. It actually happened several years ago. Adam is actually a bot that I've been cultivating for some years. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a very good one. That's exactly <laughs> what I trained the bot to say. <laughs> nice. Do you have any top candidates for who those might be, or just generic thoughts? Yeah, probably like the, the like I think the the Google one, which is called DeepMind. They already announced that they have done it. I think, or that they are very close. So that's probably one, and the other one might be like a total random one. I don't know, but I yeah, I think that like it's not going to be efficient. Like it's not going to be oh, I'm going to tell this machine how to drive and it will drive a car, right? So not not at that level, but more at the um, it's a system that should you scale it infinitely, make it infinite fast, it would be able you you could teach it to do th- such things, but in the beginning it would be like teaching a toddler how to play chess or something like it would be. Yeah. I wouldn't um, recommend it. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But also you don't have to show them a million games or 10 billion games before it knows sort of how to play chess. It would actually learn the rules, make a model um, of the the chess game and then execute that model within its own system to, to make prediction on what the best move is going to be. Uh, without, yeah, without I, I, I infer that you either don't have a toddler or the only toddler you have <laughs> or have are, are chess prodigies because uh, I, I, um, teaching a toddler but, chess it feels like a very six months pregnant yeah there you oh, go okay well yeah, right, right. yeah 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 come back <laughs> come back in six years right <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay okay all right what else nice. you got are, that's a good one what else you got okay so the three years actually from my book so that's going to be, I think, um, drones uh, flying around private properties are going to be like a standard thing. Or right? hmm. in, in, in three years, it's just going to be like the, the, the sort of the Star Wars uh, drone that's something is just flying around, scanning things and stuff. Um, that's going to be something that's just common by then. And I think many people think it's already possible or like it's already existing, but I think there's still some things that have to happen. But the products that are getting released right now, um, they'll they'll make it possible. And I think in, in three years they're going to be all over the place. Interesting. Yeah. And, and then yeah. in primarily kind of commercial applications, like yeah, like maybe factory uh, yeah, okay. plots or like maybe um, so. One one funny thing is the power line industry. So yeah. power line inspections is a big thing where yeah, my yeah, company yeah. is also active, and there's. Companies selling products for specifically that business case, like very high resolution cameras and stuff. Um, but there's actually not, uh, as far as I know, any companies that are doing it successfully. Um, and I think this is also going to change. So, in, in, so with successfully, I mean, like, so a, a customer would come to us and say, we have uh, a thousand miles of power lines going from here to there. We want them, want it to be inspected in a, in a manner that's 
competitive with humans going there and taking camera and, and zooming in on something. Yeah. And, uh, or or that's, PG&E's that's example uh, case, uh, not inspecting them at all. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah can, exactly. I, I don't know if I trust PG&E to get it right, but as, as the, we're a California resident, so uh, that, this can't happen soon enough. Uh, that's yeah. a great prediction. Um, and then the six-year one, uh, it's going to be that Web3 will actually happen. Oh, <laughs> but, goodness. All right. We got one of those. Not in the way that people are currently talking about Web3. I think I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here in the sense that it's just bullshit what's going on, what people are talking about Web3 right now. But I think that in six years, the web is going to be so absolutely unusable due to machine learning, AI, and, and agents, and, and whatever, disrupting all like currently established crowdfunded moderation systems. So uh, yeah, all moderation systems that are currently making the web really valuable and, and useful, uh, they're going to be totally gamed and, and, and messed up by, by autonomous agents and, and companies with big, big money. That's so just going to be inundated with, with spam effectively. Yeah, and something will have to come along that that sort of like disrupts that in some way. I don't know how. I don't know, uh, but I think that's that's just got to happen. That's interesting because well, moderation plays such an important role in the web that we don't necessarily see because we don't see what the moderators are seeing. But that is that's really interesting and dark. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. the, all right, those are good. Those are the, those are those are three good predictions. Congratulations on your. I, I looking. You definitely come back to us and, and let us know how the, the, the chess lessons are doing um, in a couple oh, of years. <laughs> uh, all right, Ben, you were next. Yeah. Um, so I actually submitted a pull request as directed. I, oh, there I you go. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, a couple comments on on past predictions people have made. Um, I think uh, as soon as the big x86 vendors feel threatened by risk or any other architecture, there's no problem with them throwing that instruction set alongside uh, what they already have. The, the problem with that approach is the accretion of behaviors that makes it impossible to re reason about uh, a part and to trust it, and also burning all those extra gates, which at scale wastes a lot of power. Um, you know, in much the same way that C is not a low-level language, uh, any modern instruction set um, is not that low level. You know, they, they start low level. Risk and MIPS and R involve started low level, but um, as as they try to optimize their behavior, they become more complex. And and your your assembler is not really the representative of what the machine code's doing. Yeah, interesting. Um, so let's see. I'm, I was thinking about the global pandemic. Um, you know, what's different between the last one, Spanish flu, and how technology relates to that. And I was, you know, thinking about working at home and uh, just wanting space for another few monitors on my desk. And what do people do who don't have that space even for, you know, one extra monitor? I think smart glasses might actually have a market uh, if they come down from their current approximately $1,500 price to something more the, the cost of an affordable cell phone. Hmm. Uh, I think Google Glass, you know, the Google Glass type thing uh, will have a place. I don't think people are, I think people are, there's going to be a lasting effect of people not really wanting to get into crowded workspaces again. Uh, so that's my one-year prediction that, that uh, smart glasses become a viable alternative. That's um, interesting, yeah. Relating to, uh, you know, AI and moderation systems breaking down, I think that if people 
step away from their desks and use these in real life, that that's another venue where ads are going to be completely inundating, um, you know, inundating that space. And much like, uh, you know, Lady Bird Johnson's uh, Highway Beautification Act that removed so many billboards from highways, uh, there's going to have to be, uh, there's going to be such a revolt. There's going to have to be legislation to uh, severely curtail intrusive ad advertising. Um, three years out, I think that the cost of maintaining all this commercial space for offices is just going to be such a burden on companies that they're going to find something else. You know, the world's going to find something else to do with it, whether whether they go bankrupt or sell it off uh, at fire sale prices. Uh, and I think that, you know, may be used to uh, provide housing. Uh, and is that a one or three year? That's a three year prediction. It sounds that's, like that's a three year. You know, it, yeah, it'll be based on financials of companies. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Everyone thinks uh, pandemic's going to be over. People are going to go back to the workplace. Everything's going to be exactly the way it was before. And I think that, um, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. out. I think, it, I think it's going to stretch out longer than the finances of, of the companies that maintain these uh, workspaces. Are. The the, uh, the workforce is going to remain remote longer than you can remain solvent from a commercial real right, estate correct. perspective. Yeah. Okay. It's like, yeah. 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 And then six years, uh, just kind of a throwaway one, you know, as I, as AIs become more complex, uh, you know, we, we don't understand at a low level, the same way we would a piece of firmware, how a brain works. And, uh, you know, AIs are, you know, trained on databases and we, and we judge their behavior. We score them and how well they did, you know, take give them aptitude tests. Um, the, uh, my prediction is that AI specialists are more therapists than programmers. <laughs> well, this is certainly something that I have said as a kind of an API malcontent is that there are lots of things that the brain does that we don't like, uh, like brain cancer and neurodegenerative disorders that we probably don't want our computing systems to have. So um, the, uh, we, we, yeah, we may be signing up for therapists, AI-related therapists. That would be pretty funny. And that's it for me. Those are great. Those are terrific. Those are, those are terrific. Um, so, Adam, I, I, um, do you uh, – I think Kelsey Hightower just joined us. Kelsey, do you have some, uh, some one, three, and six-year predictions for it? Oh, man, I'm in the wrong state of mind for predicting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my one year would be um, – hmm, I, think, I think this year is going to be a really uh, basic year in terms of predictions. I think it's going to be more of the same. Uh, a lot of hope of getting back to normal, whatever that means. I think redefining normal uh, will be the thing. But So that one year is going to be the land grab of defining the new normal. Uh, so there'll be a competition between the metaverse, whatever that means, uh, figuring out what your life should be. But I think the competition started last year. So the first year is going to be just a competition for who wants to define the new normal whether it's going back into the office, working nine to five, or realizing that we were stuck in the matrix and we should get out. Interesting. Yeah. And the, the, this year will be kind of a, we'll start to see some of the options emerge. Three years. Uh, in three years, I think a lot of things that we started during the pandemic, I think we're starting them from the wrong place of desperation. Uh, they will backfire like dramatically bad. Uh, so for example, I think cryptocurrency will open the door to government finally finding a way to track 
your actual money. I think they've held off for a very long time in the name of freedom and thinking that would freak people out. Uh, I think cryptocurrencies given them a free pass here that people will actually accept full tracking on all your spending as if it's good for you, which is pretty insane. Uh, but I think, oh my God, I, I think these things will backfire. If you accept them in some form, you will probably accept them in all forms. Huh. Uh, and, and I mean, that would be talk about the animals walking upright in terms of animal farm. You've got, I mean, the fact that this has started with kind of liberation and we end up in, in your dystopian world, we end up in this kind of state where all of our finances are being monitored all the time. Yeah, I think, I think what's being presented now, some would say, if it's bad and you want to see something change. So I think change is being forced. And so when you force change, that means you said there has to be something and it has to look like this. Uh, I think China's giving you a hint at what that will look like. And it will be this uh, government money that will allow you to do all the things that you complained about before with one major train off. <laughs> we will give you the transparency, but not the kind you want it. Uh, huh. so I think I think that one is that we're playing into it is what, is what I'm getting at. Six years, we will finally see the full realization that technology is now considered sovereignty. I think money and currency was considered sovereignty. Land was considered sovereignty, but now that we spend a lot of time, whether it's in a video game or in the cloud or checking email, you can already see it unfolding. But I do think the regulation will catch up that uh, this idea of using services from a potential adversary or a potential ally that's pretty weak. I think in six years, you would actually see governments really start to treat technology as part of their full sovereignty. So they will want local hardware manufacturers. They will want the chip to be made in their home country or they're not buying it. So you'll see those kind of 49, 51% ownership deals that we saw in finance. Wow. So hasn't that already basically happened? I don't think so. Not, uh, not, not to the degree that I think Kelsey's alluding to here. Yeah, I think we saw uh, hints of it where, you know, this supply chain shortage has thrown a lot of governments for a loop. They can't do anything about it. You can't really threaten wars like we're in the foundation here. It's like you don't have the skills to manufacture this stuff, even if you wanted to. So you've got to remember, there's going to have to be a period of time, and I think maybe five or six years, maybe more like 10, where you can say never again. So I think people will realize that just outsourcing your sovereignty digitally is a no-go. And so the work will be in full swing to prevent that from happening again. That starts from talent. Uh, you got to invest in your local universities to make sure you have the skills. And you're going to have to figure out an incentive system that doesn't draw everyone to the same 10, 20 companies globally uh, to do this kind of work. So this is natural because we're now infusing government sovereignty into all of our technology. So something's got to give. And, and Kelsey, is this fair to call this like techno-nationalism? Is that a fair way of characterizing it? I mean, what are some of the specific things that we would look for? Would that would indicate this trend. You can see this. So if you're in the SaaS business, more than likely a government has asked you to host that SaaS business in a particular country and guarantee the only people with access to that data have passports from that country or are natural born citizens of that country. And you need to be able to prove that those are the only people who can touch those systems. We already see that in the cloud, but you're starting to see smaller vendors being asked to comply 
with this level. So this is beyond PCI, HIPAA, uh, GDPR. This is beyond that. This is a government saying we don't have a CTO, but maybe we should. Can I add, is this world better or worse? Is this world, this feels very, they, uh, am I right that these predictions seem a little grim or are, is this? I, I think, it, I think they're better because we can no longer pretend that there isn't a power funny, structure yeah. at the helm. So now every country is going to have to, you can't just delegate capitalism to the two or three most popular countries you believe in. You can't delegate um, your education to just a few educators. So I think this gets better because if we really believe in opportunity, all of these countries need to get good at this stuff in order to see some mm. healthy competition again. So that's more opportunities for you. That's more opportunities for anyone that's building something because you no longer have to compete in such a constrained market that we have now. So you're saying like, almost a kind of national protectionism to, to foster some of those industries that would struggle to compete on a global stage. Yeah, it reminds me like the space race or even the Apple race where the internal two teams had to compete with each other to produce the very best thing that they will call the iPad or the iPhone. But right now we don't have that, right? Because if you're a small country, you just delegate that to Samsung or Apple and say, hey, we'll buy whatever they're, they're pushing out there. And that, necess- that doesn't necessarily tap into all the intelligence that's available. So even though it sounds grim, I think responsibility does sound grim when you're used to not having to worry about something or a whole lot of things. So now when someone tells you, you're going to have to step up to the plate, skill up, and be able to do this work as well, that can sound a bit grim, but I think it's probably exactly what we need long term. Yeah, interesting. And d- is this world open? I mean, is this world nationalistic but also one in which technology is being shared across national borders this is why Um, yes i think open source will be the default model mainly because it will take too long to start from scratch so if you're smart and you're asking you know we all know the time pressures of anything that's serious they're going to want this stuff like tomorrow and the best thing to do is go to fork a repository or have people in these communities because most of these open source contributors are already global a lot of these people you know, despite the U.S. fallacy that we create everything, uh, a lot of the technology is being worked on globally. So imagine now being able to stay in your home country and be rewarded for working on problems that are local. So I think the open source will be the default model that this takes on because it just doesn't make sense to start from scratch every country. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's exciting. And then I'm, I, you know, we've been limiting folks to one Web three prediction. I'm not sure. I guess you would you would maybe count your three years of Web three based prediction, Kelsey. I just have to say, well, we've got you. Thank you so much for your explorations of Web three. So uh, I think a lot of technologists, including myself, have really appreciated you. Can, can I can I explain the Web three exploration? Yeah, definitely. Uh, every technology has potential to be really, really good for a lot of people or really, really bad for a lot of people. Uh, I think there's some people would say during like the world wars, the advancement in like bombs was didn't work out for a lot of people. So y- you have to pay attention to this stuff. When I look at Web3, I was really excited, actually. When you hear a, a version number being bumped in technology, we tend to get excited and we want to go look at the release notes. I went to go look at the release notes, and what I saw was kind of cryptocurrency at the top of the release notes. and said, okay, why is this being rubbed on, on everything? And you look at it, and it looks like 
I've never in my 20 years of tech seen something being pushed so hard before it can naturally be useful, right? Because typically you throw technology out there, even if it's ready, even if it's not ready, other technologists will pick it up and say, oh my God, this is cool. Let me show you what I've built. And I'm yet to see what people have built. Well, and I think also when you have those kind of technological shifts, which obviously you've been a part of, of some really big ones, the, 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 the complexion of it is totally different. It's technologists actually like building stuff and getting stuff working. And other people may just dis- be dismissing it as like not serious or not at scale or not as good as like your digital photograph isn't as good as my, as my slide photography. But it's like, no, it has all these other advantages, often economic advantages. This and is I mean, the I- first technology shift that I've seen that brings politics into the picture as part of its foundation. Yeah. You know, Stephen referred to this as a tech trend, and you just call it a technology shift. But I think to your point, the the technology is actually a trailing indicator rather than the leading indicator in this case. Yeah, I think this is the thing of saying, you know, and for my 20 years that I've been in tech, you've been able to dodge politics for the most part. You could just say, hey, I'm agnostic. The software I'm writing is agnostic. But if you look at some of the charters for some of the stuff, it's literally saying, we need to go and break up uh, company X, Y, and Z. We need to go disrupt uh, this particular government. Uh, so this gets very serious. You can't just be someone writing code. You have to actually maybe decide where do you stand on some of these political issues, which wasn't really a requirement for most of the technologies that I was experienced with. Yeah, it is really unlike anything we've seen. And again, I'm a, I, you know, you and I are and Stephen and Adam. We're all kind of a similar vintage, but in that, at this, you know, between two and three decades, and it really is very, very different and very divided. Um, so, but I thank you for you, you took such an earnest look at it, and it, you know, I it, it was just very, very helpful to watch your explorations, and I I think that. It's been a lot of time where technologists have been kind of almost afraid to speak their mind on this because it has had such, uh, I mean, the proponents are so enthusiastic. Right, I'm going to say something nice about Web3, though. So one thing oh, is... Oh, do it, yeah. <laughs> there, there, there are some things that are decent. So I think the, you know, I do think there's a lot of people who've taken over uh, this opportunity to make a lot of cash off of a lot of people who are unsuspecting. But there are some things that I think are okay. For example... That concept of logging in with your own private keys, this idea that you can own your identity. Look, we already do it for like GitHub. So it's not like it's something we've never seen before. You do it with MTLS. But the average person, I don't think, had that on their radar. Ideally, we could do this for like two-factor FIDO keys or something. But this idea of making that UX easy, I, I applaud them for rethinking, do you own your own identity? And can you take it somewhere else with you? I think that's a reasonable challenge. And then things like IPFS, just thinking about storage yeah. outside of POSIX semantics and giving people a concept of where does your storage live and how do you locate it? And again, we've seen this before, but there are some tenets of that movement that make a bit of sense minus the uh, microtransactions. Right. Yeah, no, that, that totally true. And certainly there are some elements, as always, there's some elements of decentralization that are that are hugely valuable. Um, when people talk about owning their own identity, though, I'm not sure they want to own what happens when they lose their identity accidentally or their identity. I I'm, mean, I'm writing a blog post and that was the first thing I couldn't resolve. Normally, when you use lose your password, 
Uh, You get an email. There's some recovery process. I know that they're thinking about that as well. But yes, if you lose your keys, uh, you lose your account. If this is the library, maybe you open another one. But if this is your bank account, then things get a little bit more uh, serious. We like centralization, it turns out, in some cases. Well, this is your spouse who has died suddenly and with, with affairs not in order. And now you have, like, I mean, th- their identity is deceased. And, you know, boy, how would you, I mean, so I think, yeah, the, the, there are some really thorny challenges there. We're thinking about trust in a whole new way. And I think the terms they've given people, or at least people like me to think through is, when I think about decentralization in the way it's being framed, and centralization the way it's now being framed, I've been using this kind of responsibility slider. If you can name the entity, if you can name the person, that gets you closer to centralization. So that's who's responsible. Like you hurt me, you stole from me, and you can fix it. The more of that you have, the more insurance, the more uh, responsibility, I think people consider that centralization. The less of that is decentralized. And I think people are starting to think about it as a slider. Have you seen anyone that has their NFT stolen? Uh, They want to call the police or they want to call some law enforcement to say, I now need someone to be responsible yeah. to give my thing back that was stolen from the decentralized world. So it's it's weird, but I think people are starting to discover that, that slider needs to be there. Yeah, interesting. Sorry, I'm once again doing the thing that I said I wouldn't do in terms of. <laughs> I, it's like it's I, it's I'm, like a it's like a fungus in my brain. You can't look away. Can, yeah. Can I also just ask how you think this compares to previous decentralized, what might what might have been previously called federated, um, or if you're more cynical about it, feudalist? I think there's a reason people gravitate to communities. People gravitate to a sports team. People gravitate to groups. To ignore that, I think, doesn't make a lot of sense. So we have to ask the question, why do people gravitate towards communities, right? People want to be where other people are. And so when you think about social media, and I hate using this Web2 thing because I never called this stuff Web2 in my whole life until (laughs) someone told me about Web3, but I'll play the game. People go to where other people are. That's how it works. If someone throws a concert, you want to be there because there's an experience that humans like to do. If you can make a better experience, maybe people will gravitate towards that. In terms of the other models, It just depends on who's actually in control. And for me, I follow the money. When I look at any of these systems, I'm asking what's in it for you. If you want to be the gatekeeper, right? They complain about the existing gatekeepers, but then they shut up the toll booths and the fees look a little bit higher than the ones I'm currently paying now. So regardless of what they name it, I always ask who stands to make the most money and what is the model for doing that? Well, and in specifically, Kelsey, you asked and then answered a question. You asked a question that I have had and not answered, namely, who gets the gas fees on this stuff? And the I could not believe the answer. I mean, I was jaw in my lap at the answer to that. Adam, do you know this? No. What what is it? Kelsey? Do you want I the gas I, fee? Go I mean who gets the gas fees? Nobody. It gets burned. It, it, and they, in fact, I think they call it literally burning, don't they? It's like the vast majority of the gas are like it is. It is. It, it goes. It's inflationary. Yes. But Brian, I believe that was in a response to the fact that 
from what I read from the website, so I try to study this from the source of truth. And, you know, when Ethereum was set up, there's a reason why we have to expand the money supply. It's not just to cause inflation to make people and CNBC mad all the time. There's a reason why you need to accommodate the expansion of people yes. and economic activity. And I think Ether was designed around that function. But imagine a currency that you keep minting, uh, I think it's like a thousand Ether a day. That gets to the same kind of problem you have with inflation in general. So I think the proposal was to start burning it uh, to make up for the lack of activity. You don't have enough activity on that particular blockchain. Number one, it's expensive. Uh, the virtual machine is expensive to run those programs. It's very expensive to handle. So you need something to speed things up. And I think in the short term, and they can always change it, is to burn it. If you burn it, then you can actually reduce the supply. And I believe they said something at the rate of 1.4% every year over time. And that should add some stability in the system. Because without burning it, then you're right. You would have a bunch of people centralizing all of the ETH through their fees, right? You would have all of the miners basically accumulating all of the wealth. And then you have the exact same problem uh, you claim to be defending against. Well, I think I think one thing to at least that I think about, you know, when I think about these systems is, as Kelsey just articulated, I think very well, is the idea that, you know, to to understand some of the claims here, to understand some of the proposals, you do have to think through both the existing systems, right? Gatekeepers, where, you know, follow the money. Where is that coming from? Um, but the interesting thing to me has been, you know, sort of, you know, on the end user front, right? Which to think through you know, the, you know, sort of what are the incentives here, right? What are the drivers? What are, you know, what's entailed here? And, you know, the, the sort of analogy I was using with a, a friend of mine last week was if you go watch, I don't know when it came out, uh, the movie Easy Rider, right? So it came out in what, late 60s, I want to say 68, 69, somewhere around then. And, you know, basically tried to articulate and capture sort of the, the ethos and sentiment of a generation of disaffected youth you know, in the United States in the 60s, um, and I guess to a lesser extent worldwide. Um, but anyway, you know, one of the interesting sort of, you know, takeaways when you sort of look at that was that there was this generation of, of um, you know, American youth who, you know, were dissatisfied, you know, with the existing conditions and said, okay, we're going to go back to the land and, um, you know, we're going to start over, you know, uh, screw the man and, and all that. And then they got to the farms and were like, this is terrible. You know, I, I don't want to yeah. do this work. Yeah, that's you know, a great analogy. Miserable, this is a miserable experience for me. This is not the utopia that sort of I had anticipated. And, huh. you know, I, I think of that a lot, you know, when, you know, you hear about these sort of, um, you know, these sort of purely idea ethos, you know, sort of um, justifications for a lot of these technologies. And at least from what I can see, you know, it, it's just – you know, I remember talking to somebody years ago again about the sort uh, about Gmail. And if you led with Gmail, right, and said, "Okay, you know, look, um, there's going to be this email system, and it's going to, uh, you know, sort of algorithmically mine your email and serve you ads based on that." Right? If that's what you lead with, people are like, "Yeah, I'm out." Right? If instead you present the interface, you know, which at the time was revolutionary, had a revolutionary amount of storage space. You know, uh, interact. It was much more interactive than than certainly competitive clients at the time. All of a sudden, you have this you have this incentive, right? Which is like, yeah, yeah, fine. I will deal with the ads because this is so much better than what I have. 
And at least at present, you know, for me, when I look around, you know, I, I have some of the same questions, I think, on sort of the mechanics of the systems here, right, in terms of, you know, who runs them, who owns the machines, who are the gatekeepers, you know, where are the sort of rates of tax, um, you know, what is the role of currency and inflation and fiat currencies and bearer, bear, you know, currencies and so on. Those are all interesting questions. But to me, so much of the, the sort of promise of decentralization, particularly from those who are its strongest advocates, uh, you know, I, I am I, to I put think, it mildly skeptical that the that the demand is going to be there. I think the biggest thing that people forgot to decentralize was the power structure. I think some people have mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. when you when the number of people who were involved in the design of these proposed systems is not representative of the world at all. Mm-hmm. This is the same people who benefited from the previous power structure attempting to tell us they're here to present a new one where they're still at the top. They still have the starting precision, and ideally this one will be good for you as well. And this is where I think a lot of the skepticism comes from. Who was at that table? Who was named on those papers that look like the people they're supposed to be rescuing? I think that's where we fall apart. Did you see Jack Dorsey's tweet today? Oh my God! I mean, Dorsey has just been on a rip, and he, he Adam, did you see this? This is Chris. No, Dixon. I missed it. So Chris Dixon, uh, who's been the yeah. major proponent of Web three, amazingly enough, hasn't blocked me. Although I almost view that as like <laughs> I, I'm almost like ashamed of that. Like all yeah. my friends have been blocked. You're try, trying Dixon. as hard as you can. I'm trying as hard as I can out here to be blocked by this guy. Can you please block me? The um, but the, uh, Chris Dixon blogged the ownership or blogged tweeted the ownership of all these web two companies, which of course is all of the hedge funds and so on. And Dorsey replied to that. Now do your LPs. <laughs> nice. Which is like, Oh my God, Dor- Dorsey is deadly right now. I mean, he is just dropping bombs, but I feel, I mean, Kelsey, to your point, it's like the ownership structure of those who would displace the extant ownership structure. It's the same ownership structure. Like you haven't actually changed the fundamental. But you know what I worry the most about, though, is that we're starting to bring in this very negative, and it's probably always been here in tech to some degree, but the way people have these conversations, it's it's really bad, in my opinion. Totally. Like, and some of these are just bots, but if you say something that seems not in line, yeah. the response you get these days is crazy. I can it's understand crazy. why people say, hey, yeah. I did this benchmark, you're totally wrong. Here's my results. Here's the code I ran. I can I can deal with that. But when you say you're not going to make it, like that's how we end disputes now. You're not going to make it, uh, which is crazy. Yeah, no, that's a, such a good point. Like not going to make it. I mean, that is such a terrible thing to say. Actually, we've normalized it, but it's a terrible thing to say. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point. Um, so uh, Daniel, I know you've had your hand up for a while. Um, I, I'm hoping you got some optimistic predictions for us. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I hope uh, Twitter won't crash again. Anyway, a few hot takes. Uh, one year, we're talking about a major operating system from China. Three years, we're going to be talking about some high-performance computing from Europe. And six years, ARM is no longer relevant. So that's not a positive one, I'm sorry, and no Web3, but that's um, mine. I think the ARM one is a positive one. I think that's a positive one. <laughs> I, you know, I've got complicated things about ARM. I like ARM. The, so, all right, Daniel, that's really interesting. And actually, Kelsey, I kind of think that that is a kind of a deep tech equivalent of some of the things that you're talking about, where you are seeing some of the, an operating system from China as a one-year 
a the, the, deep technology from Europe is a three-year. Um, I mean, you're starting to see um, tech, deep technology developed everywhere, which of course it always has been, but um, in, a, in a much more kind of visceral sense. I think ARM is going to change the game, period. I think we're going to, and it may not be a good direction. I don't know if the ARM64 will be the standard we all do, but we're going to get to this hyper-specialization of hardware that you can't buy. That is, I, I believe, the better price on serverless will because of hardware you can't buy. I've said this for a long time that the early days of cloud was you know, somewhat hosting things you could buy. But I yeah. think the hyper-specialization will be around the things that you can't buy in order to get scale. I don't know if that's good or bad, but the utility computing, I think, Brian, and maybe I love your take on it, is going to require going beyond consumer-grade technology. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it would obviously, I mean, this is the, clearly the oxide thesis is taking that technology that you're right, people can't buy right now and democratizing that and bringing that to people who can buy it. But no, you're totally right. Um, that it, right now there is now I am actually optimistic and I was pr- kind of be curious about because Daniel's done so much in open firmware um, about the and for my own predictions, actually, um, I again, I only have one Web3 based prediction. Um, and Adam, I want to, us to get to our predictions as well before we before we have to split. But the and, I, and Dan, I want to get to you too. Um, but for um, I, my actually my three year prediction is around my, my six year prediction. I said earlier, I think that one of the top three FPGA manufacturers is going to be open. Um, my uh, my three year prediction actually uh, um, around Daniel kind of and I think Kelsey tapping into some of your themes as well. Um, I think KiCad is one of the most KiCad six is a really important development. Um, I think that right now EDA is still proprietary, basically, um, for real for quote unquote real stuff for for many layer boards. You know, you, you have a twenty four layer board that's on a KiCad board. Um, I think it's going to become. I think in the in three years. KiCad is going to be used in major shops doing complicated many-layer boards, and KiCad 6 is seen at the moment as the moment that open-source EDA became ready for professional use. So I think we're on the cusp of nice. big in, well, in EDA. What, 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 that was three-year or one-year? That's three-year. Nice. Um, so, of course, with, with, my, with those two out, you know that my one-year is clearly the, the Web3 brain fungus. <laughs> Let's just get it out there. I think that there's going to be a high-profile Web3 flameout and both skeptics and proponents point to it as confirming their thesis. So <laughs> <laughs> everyone declares victory. That's everyone great. declares victory. So somewhat there is some some there, there is a pets.com equivalent. Because you remember when pets.com flamed out, there was a sense, and Stephen, you remember this, Kelsey, you probably remember this, there that early dot com flame out. There was definitely a sense among the infrastructure providers that, like, yes, that never made sense. And now there's going to be – do you remember when we called it the correction briefly? Uh, (laughs) Very briefly, yeah. Yeah, we actually – like, that happened. We called it the correction, not the bust. And then the correction gave way to the bust. We realized, like, oh, no, no, it's not – sorry, that elevator doesn't stop at the ground floor. That, That one goes all the way to the center of the earth. Um, so I, so I think that we are going to have, but we have our first flame out, but, uh, but Chris Dixon is telling, telling us why it confirms this web three thesis and we, we, we continue to be annoyed <laughs> in a year. Um, and right, Adam, can, I want to yeah. jump in with mine. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah and, do and, yours and safely much less thought provoking than, than the ones we've heard. So, uh, starting with my web three and my one year, 
Uh, sometimes you bet your your heart, and sometimes you bet your head. And this one is definitely betting my heart. But my bet is uh, January third, twenty twenty three. Web three is done. Like we're not talking about Web three. You 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 say it, and people don't necessarily remember what you were talking about. Is that this was a deep fad, and uh, and it didn't last. So Web three is like Ajax. No one can even remember what it stands for. You're like, oh yeah, no, I think I remember that. That was like uh, right, the right. pandemic, right? Yes, like, yes. Hey, can, can I yes. get an over under prediction? Does Web three die before or after Ethereum two comes out? Ooh, that's yeah. Good question. I think the thing we're missing is that remember Web three did something very clever you can keep appending its definition forever. <laughs> well, so well, it's well, here, five of web development cycles. Well, it, it, is, it is a relabeling and it, it continues to relabel, but I mean, at least the term, the insufferable term will, will go away. So we, don't, we, can, we, can be, we can grouse about other things that are equally insufferable, but that specifically one has gone away. So that's my one year. My, my three year, and we haven't really touched on this, is that we focus uh, as an industry much more on productivity per watt or per unit energy. And no, this is not count as another Web3 prediction, Brian. This is different. Um, but that we're building observability tools that let us understand how our workloads are working. And this is on large scale systems, not on like embedded systems. And, and people care a lot more and they're, uh, about how much uh, power and, and the cost of power is going into their systems. Uh, or into their workloads. And and we can see this because people are spinning up and down workloads based on the, the cost and availability. The, Adam, unfortunately, Twitter spaces rebooted during that. Is that is that a three-year prediction? I just got the end of that. That was a three-year. Yeah, three -year, I love yeah. that prediction. That's a good one. Thank you. And then uh, and then my sixth year, along the lines that we've heard, is uh, Amazon is selling a RISC-V-based instance. Um, and I guess everyone is, is long on risk five on this one. So I don't have to go into it, but, uh, that's, that's my six year. That's a good one. I, I now the we will look back on this year as like really prescient or the year that everyone just like lost their mind over risk five, like a risk five fever dream. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like risk five fever was everywhere. Um, uh, that's great. I can no longer see who's got their hand up, but at the end, I know you, you wanted to get in here and we want to get Adam back to his family before too long. So, uh, definitely want to wrap it up. Yeah. Dan, go for it. All right, I'll be really brief. Um, mine are very pessimistic. Uh, one year, I see uh, major changes to the workplace continuing to be driven by the pandemic, but these are going to amplify and accentuate the effects of the wealth gap and uh, wealth disparity. You know, it'll be people who are privileged to work in the information economy or the service sector who are able to work from home will be able to will be afforded will continue to be afforded the flexibility to do so. Um, those who are not will not. And that's going to create a lot of social problems. In three years, I see um, regulation of social media in the aftermath of widespread political unrest around, especially in the U.S., the 2024 political season. Um, that's going to happen. There's going to be political violence. And I think this time around, it's going to be the people are going to be like, all right, this is enough. We have to rein in social media somehow. And I, I, like the, I like that this is your prediction, Dan, like blah, 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 unrest, sure, but also social media is going to need to get brain dead. I got to say, I'm concerned about the unrest as well. Yeah, no, the unrest is going to be unsettling. And in year six, I think that the effects of climate change are going to be sufficiently evident that people are going to really get serious about retooling around compute efficiency and, and power efficiency. In much the same way that Adam predicted, I think it's going to take us a little longer to realize that the frog has been boiled, but we're going to get there. And those are my three predictions. 
Don't, don't look up, Dan. Kelsey, I already try not to. <laughs> can I take a short position on the other side of all three of Dan's? No, I will. I actually, so I think that's right. We know we need to do the long bets. So I actually, and Dan, I'm going to retool your six year prediction, which I, I definitely agree with, on a slightly more optimistic note, which I do feel that on climate change, the tenor is going to start to shift to not we need to prevent this from happening to this is a problem that we need to collectively solve. And how do we humanity summon our ingenuity and our innovation to go take a swing at some of these problems and compute inefficiency is certainly one that those of us in here, definitely technologists have our eyes on um, as something where there's a lot of opportunity to, to really improve things. And I really want us to get back. Kelsey, you said this earlier about, you know, this kind of this disparaging tone that we've adopted in tech and, I don't know, maybe we've, we've exacerbated it by, by, uh, with our Web3 predictions, but I really want, to get, want us to get back to uh, building stuff and improving people's lives. And we, we have to invite those hungry, curious, naive new people to bring that kind of optimism. You know what I mean? Like the longer I've been in yeah. tech, I've seen the loops too many times. So it's very easy for me to become a little bit pessimistic when that's not necessary. So you know, be on the lookout for all those new people coming in and let's not poison them too early. Let's not poison them too early. That's a great note, I feel. Uh, and Adam, a good one. Any closing thoughts? I think that's no, a good no, one. Uh, go it, it, perfect. It's, it's so easy to find no and, and to help people find no. It's a lot harder to find yes. And uh, I, I love that, Kelsey, to, to, to help find that optimism. Well, thank you, everybody. It's a great final note. Thank you, everybody, for all of your terrific predictions. Um, and uh, great to get. Uh, Kelsey, thank you so much for, for joining us, Stephen. It was obviously thanks for kicking us off with a bunch of really great predictions and a, a lot of great predictions from a lot of great folks. So um, I know we're uh, very excited to uh, look towards the future here. And I think um, one just kind of... Uh, Show note is we're definitely going to try to get these recordings out via a podcast vector as well. So uh, if you want to be able to listen to this while you're, you know, driving or whatever, make it a little bit easier. Yeah, that's, our, that's our New Year's resolution. And that's Brian, our New Year's wanna, resolution. Yeah. Do you want to pitch uh, next week's show? Oh, I do. I do want to pitch, pitch next week's show. So, yeah, we I got a terrific book um, from my mother, who knows me well, um, uh, called Flying Blind. Uh, it's by Peter Robison um, on the 737 Max. Um when we saw the, the, the tragic 737 MAX crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia, um, and we knew that there was going to be a lot more to know about the 737 MAX and, and what failed. The book goes into all that detail. Um, I thought, it, I know, Adam, you're reading it now. I'm hoping that I haven't oversold it to you, but I don't think I have. It's yeah, awesome. it, yeah, It's well-written. It's very absorbing. Um, and the author is going to join us next week. So really excited to have him here. Um, and uh, this is, you know, one of the, one of the great strengths of this medium is the ability to, to talk about democratizing it. In fact, we, Adam, I know in, when, when we were setting this up, you're like, are we like Terry Gross now? I'm like, <laughs> I think we are. I don't know. Like, but first, the news. Um, so uh, I'm very excited for that. It's going to be a great conversation. And hopefully you can uh, join us next week. All right. All right. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Yeah. Ryan, it's, it's official. Yeah, sure. You are now the car talk of tech.